back to the Soils Matters, guys. Staff, host, guest, take it away. Uh, Thanks, Ken. Thank you so much, Ken. And uh, we there's quite quite an honor. Um, uh, Stephanie, uh, you probably do not recognize me, but uh, we we communicated by email probably almost a decade ago. Um, wow. We were we were having a discussion around glyphosate and and uh, and perhaps some of the um, deficiencies that happen within plants because of, of glyphosate and and I think I was uh, you know communicating with Gilles Eric Seralini and and uh, Don Huber uh, mm-hmm. and Clark at that time I think Nancy Swanson was on that email thread as well so uh, very honored to have you on um, I'm Av Singh and I'm actually the co-host almost like the sidekick to Leighton Morrison who is our host. But uh, we're so so honored to have you on and excited. Um, my 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 brief introduction to your to your work is is that uh, I don't know what it is about the water at MIT, but uh, <laughs> uh, do, they do produce some amazing thinkers. And um, I, I I picture this world where you and and Chomsky are are having these amazing discussions. <laughs> um, as, to, to our audience, I just want to say uh, Dr. Seneff is a brilliant mind, um, one, of, one of, I think, one of our greatest thinkers of the time, um, putting out concepts to, for us to all critically think about what we're reading, what we're seeing, um, and, and in, many, in many ways challenging what we are already believing. And uh, a brilliant, holistic thinker that is, is really taking the academy uh, and the industries uh, to, to challenge and, and to be more responsible. Um, with that, Stephanie, uh, perhaps you can give a, a little bit more of an, a better introduction than I just did uh, of, of what you've done in your vast career. Okay, yeah, so I've, I've been at MIT all my life, uh, well, all my adult life, starting with undergraduate uh, education, uh, bachelor's in biology, biophysics actually, and then uh, master's EE and PhD degrees in electrical engineering and computer science. And then um, basically been a researcher at MIT, uh, now senior research scientist, which is the highest rank on the research staff, equivalent to a full professor. Um, So I love MIT and it's really been good to me and uh, I've had a lot of fun. And I spent most of my career developing uh, computer uh, computer interfaces with humans to allow computers to communicate with humans using natural speech. Uh, precursors to M- Amazon Echo, and uh, that's the um, Alexa, and then Siri uh, on the iPhone, yes. um, and that, and, it's, and of course ChatGPT comes out of all of that too. So ChatGPT is really exciting. I've been playing around with it quite a bit recently, and it can make some big, big mistakes in biology, for sure. But it also has some pretty amazing abilities to summarize complex um, biological pathways and things like that. So I'm finding it useful. Wow. As a as a tool as a res- as a resource, so uh, anyway, that's uh, so I've had I've published over two hundred papers in peer reviewed uh, journals and uh, co- conference proceedings, um, but only since about two thousand seven, I've been working on switched my entire career path towards uh, looking at toxic chemicals in the environment and their influence on health, and extremely interested in understanding metabolism and all of biology. I really want to understand how biology works and uh, the immune system. I mean, it's a very, very complex beast and I do a lot of reading, um, trying to connect dots. Uh, that's kind of, I love puzzles. And so basically I'm working out 
trying hard to work out the puzzle of life, which is a very big puzzle. <laughs> so <laughs> keeps me busy. Yeah, it's it sounds like uh, since 2007, it's almost like you've done several PhDs around uh, all of this work around biology, chronic disorders, and in particular, um, you you had mentioned making you know some some uh, Chat GPT make some big mistakes. I think we made some big mistakes, and and maybe we can start with just talking about glyphosate. Right, and that's the um, that was the focus of my research for pro probably the past decade. Um, and this is the result of it. This book was published in July 2021 Perfect. by Chelsea Green, Toxic Legacy, How the Weed Killer Glyphosate is Destroying Our Health and the Environment. And I really believe that glyphosate is far more toxic than we realize. And of course, it's pervasive. It's the most common herbicide. It's, it's Roundup. So people are familiar with Roundup mm -hmm. and um, used extensively in agriculture. People use it on their lawns to kill the dandelions or the walkway, clear the weeds in the walkway, uh, clearing the roadsides. It's used uh, in lots of ways, and it's uh, as a as a desiccant as well. Of course, the GMO crops, you know, those came about in the late 1990s, and a lot of the core crops of the processed food industry are based on this GMO engineering, which inserts a bacterial gene into the genome of the plant uh, to give it resistance to glyphosate, and then you can just spray the poison all over the crop; it doesn't die, but it does soak it up, and it ends up in the food supply. So uh, glyphosate's all over the food supply. And um, I believe that glyphosate, probably mostly through the food, but also we get it from the air and the water, mm -hmm. is, a, is a primary primary response, uh, contributor to a huge list of diseases that are going up dramatically in step with the dramatic rise in the use of glyphosate over the past 20 years. Right. Um, and, and of course, um, from EPA to USDA to here in Canada, uh, our Health Canada, we, we, we continue to say that it's incredibly safe. Uh, we allow for increased residue limits, some of the highest residue limits in the world, I think in Canada. Um, do you want, can you explain a little bit why it is so dangerous to us as, as humans? Yeah, and I can also say why they claim it isn't, which is because oh. we, uh, they're aware that it, it really messes up a particular enzyme in a biological pathway called the shikimate pathway. And that pathway is in all plants. And it, um, it, it suppresses that enzyme. It's called EPSP synthase. And this prevents the plants from making the products of that pathway, which are absolutely critical for the plant to survive. Mm -hmm. So it kills all plants except for those that have that special engineered gene, which is a version of that enzyme from the microbe that is resistant to glyphosate. And they found this version because this microbe was growing in, in glyphosate and actually um, they, they detected it because that microbe could survive the assault of glyphosate without dying. So they figured out that gene and needed to put that into the plant. Um, that GMO technology is quite amazing, but it's also very frightening, uh, the potential of what that could do to us. And so um, I got a little bit on the sidetrack there. Let's <laughs> see, you were asking me, um, what was the question again? Well, I was thinking, yeah, so why is it? Okay, oh, so, yeah, so you it's, just mentioned exactly. that it's, it's toxic to plants. How, how does right. that? Great toxicity yes. in the humans. Right, right. So it's also toxic to the microbes because many of our gut microbes have that chickenmate pathway, have that enzyme, have a susceptibility to glyphosate. So they get disturbed by it. They get they get suppressed. And so we end up with a disrupted gut microbiome. Uh, the normal bifido and bacteria and lactobacillus are especially sensitive to glyphosate. So they become depleted in numbers. And then other species can overgrow like clostridia or even yeast. And so um, we get... Uh, if an imbalance in the gut microbiome 
toxic metabolites are being produced by these pathogens. The immune cells come in and they induce an inflammatory response. You get a leaky gut situation. And, um, and then the, you can get um, autoimmune disease because it, um, the immune cells end up uh, developing antibodies to the microbes that end up uh, uh, attacking human, human proteins because of a similar sequence. And mm. so this results in a lot of autoimmune disease. And I think celiac disease is a really good example. We, we wrote a paper on celiac disease, um, Anthony Samsel and I, um, because that's become you know so common today. I didn't even know about celiac disease when I was a child. Nobody had a problem with gluten. And now there's so many people that are gluten intolerant. Not even some of them don't actually have celiac disease per se, but they're still intolerant of gluten. Gluten contains, um, gluten is a protein that contains a lot of proline and proline is an amino acid that's very, is, is difficult to break apart from the other amino acids. And lactobacillus produce a lot of enzymes that help the host to break down, pro, uh, to break proline apart. And okay. so when those enzymes are insufficient, um, that the gluten peptides don't get uh, broken down. And that's when they can become allergenic through this uh, molecular mimicry where the uh, immune cells develop antibodies to those gluten peptides that didn't get broken down like they should have. And then those antibodies start attacking things like the thyroid and developing thyroid disease. And eventually uh, people, they have a high risk of, um, of, um, of catching non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is also linked to uh, glyphosate through lawsuits. Oh, yes, of course, uh, the, the famous case in, in, um, in California. <clears throat> with, right. Yeah. So, um, and, and Leighton, feel free to, of course, jump in at any time. But I, I, one, more, one more question that I wanted to ask a, a little bit around um, <clears throat> what you're talking about, autoimmune and, and chronic diseases. Um, with the gut microbiome, and, and we're, of course, so focused around, it's all about the biology and, and trying to get a better understanding of that. Do you, do you know if there's some good correlative studies that have looked at the human microbiome and, and, and the species and some of these uh, autoimmune diseases? So, well, it, it, yeah. Yeah, certainly. Uh, um, rheumatoid arthritis is linked to, it traces back to gut dysbiosis. Uh, even Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease for sure uh, co goes back to the gut. Some of the earliest symptoms of Parkinson's disease are, uh, are constipation, for example, is an early symptom of, of Parkinson's that's connected to the gut uh, being messed up. So I think a lot of diseases, a lot of these autoimmune diseases can be traced back to the gut. Right. Yeah. And autism, of course, as well. I should definitely mention autism yes. because that's one of the first things I realized as I was studying autism. That was where, where I started back in 2007. I saw the autism rates going up year by year. And I was frustrated that the government was spending all the money on, um, on genetics. You know, it's a genetic disease. And genetic diseases don't go up dramatically every year. So I knew there had to be something in the environment. And I was, had become very aware that a lot of the autistic kids have a lot of gut problems, constipation, bloating, diarrhea. Um, you see, they have gluten intolerance. They have sensitivities to various uh, proteins. Uh, so I thought it must be something that they're eating or maybe something in the water. I was looking for something that was getting into their gut as a, uh, as, as a, as a culprit. Um, and I hadn't considered glyphosate at all, but it was just fortunate that I happened to be at a conference where Professor Don Huber gave a two-hour presentation on glyphosate. And that was the first that I even knew the word in 2012, which is kind of amazing to me now because it's so familiar. I can't imagine not knowing that word. Um, and he, uh, and he talked about the effects of glyphosate on the gut microbiome and actually effect on the liver uh, to disrupt liver enzymes that detoxify other toxic exposures. So everything else becomes more toxic. Even, for example, Tylenol 
becomes more toxic because the uh, enzyme that assists in the in the metabolism of Tylenol gets disrupted by glyphosate. And so, um, and of course, Tylenol has also been linked to autism. So you have all these different um, dots to connect. And when you when you figure out the whole story, it makes a whole lot of sense. I feel quite confident when I say that uh, glyphosate is a major player. Probably not the only thing that causes autism, for sure, because we had it before glyphosate. But it's a major player in the epidemic. Um, are, are you also seeing um, increases, increased rates of celiac in countries that use more glyphosate? Is that... Is yeah, that I guess I haven't done that as systematically as I could, but uh, it's definitely uh, a bigger problem here than it is in Europe. And many people here, I actually got email from lots of people who said, you know, I can't eat wheat in the United States, exactly. but when they go to Europe, it's perfectly fine. Right. So yeah. That's quite interesting. Yeah. 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 No, uh, I'll do a little shout out to, uh, I think it's called Tip Double Knot or Tip Zero Zero. Um, it's, a, it's an Italian flower that a lot, it's not organic, unfortunately, but, but a lot of people who have celiac, can can you know buy this flour and and have no problem digesting it. So so I think there is some some correlative uh, in, information there and stuff. So, yeah yeah yeah. Um, Lady, did you want to jump in or I? I yeah I, I, oh, yeah. I just I, mean, I I just so appreciate you coming on the show and 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 letting sharing with us the amount of information and work that you've done over the years because it is so important and you know I <clears throat> I struggle with the u.s as a whole because of what they've allowed i know to happen here in this country that i so love um mm -hmm. it's just it's it's horrifying and yeah i mean i'm out in california uh today i don't know i probably passed six different trucks with guys spraying glyphosate on oh the side my. Of the that's really sad spraying it into the drainage ditches that that run into the ocean and and it's just horrifying it's like those weeds are fine let them be they're building soil preventing erosion they're doing all of these wonderful things and you know here we are our government our our towns and states are just spraying this stuff like there's no tomorrow without any cause or concern even though they all know it's common knowledge that this is something that is is definitely affecting way more than just the humans it's it's up and down the yeah. whole food chain and soil food web and it's it's horrifying right. you know yeah. um let me share a, a little experience that i had and i'm sure i will appreciate this um he's heard the story before but and so it's probably a lot of the audience but <clears throat> i had a little garden out back uh here that unfortunately i live on um an old oil field mm. So back in the day when they drilled these wells, obviously the oil puked out all over the ground. Uh, and when they capped the well, then they're going to bulldoze all the oil and push it into holes or pits or just bury it with the sand. So I live in a very, um, probably not the cleanest environment. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah, so instead of, instead of trying to grow food in my garden, I was trying to grow pollinators, indigenous species, you know, things that would bring back um, more butterflies and, you know, and life, uh, you know, around us. Because we, I'm in a very heavily agricultural environment, so we don't have a lot of bugs here, which is also kind of <laughs> That's not a good sign. Yeah, that's also pretty damn scary. But um, needless to say, uh, my landlord called me. I took a three-month tour across America to uh, visit with friends, clients, family, uh, after, you know, being locked down for two years. Right. And while I was away, she called me and said, Hey, the garden's a little unruly. 
uh, can I do something to it? And I said, sure, have, you know, have your lands care guy just come in and chop and drop it. We'd whack mm -hmm. it at about eight to 10 inches off the ground. That'll make it look uniform. Um, and all those good things will fall down and help to rebuild the soil um, and, and support more life. And so I didn't think anything of it. I didn't hear back from her. And I got back uh, after three months and it was bare soil. Oh, no. Yeah. And there was this one little shrub that I had been nursing for three years. Oh, to, no. He, he was a local indigenous, and they, I haven't seen hardly any of them around here. And wow. that one had shed all of its leaves, and there was just wow. a few leaves left on it. Wow. So I knew, I knew what she did. Um, oh, and no. so the first thing I did was I called a buddy of mine out in uh, Illinois, who's a bean and corn farmer, who's you know been surrounded by that stuff for his whole life. And I asked him, I said, hey, can you do me a favor? Go out in the most polluted field that you can find. It's been using you know, every kind of herbicide known to man. And I want you to find some grass clods. And I want you to pull up the whole plant. I want the root ball and the soil mm -hmm. around and ship it to me. And so mm -hmm. he did, you know, he questioned what I was up to. And I said, just, yeah, yeah, I'll explain later. So I took the clods, I suspended them in a bucket of water, and I vibrated the bucket so that basically I stripped all of the soil off of the root ball. Mm -hmm. uh, I took the root balls and the plants, threw them in the compost pile. The, the soil water solution, um, I separated out the, the liquid, you know, I call it a tea, um, for, for lack of better words. It's more like a chocolate water. Um, and I applied that to the soil and um, watered it for, you know, lightly watered it for a couple of weeks and then overseeded it and then put a, a really nice uh, compost extract on it. And that garden exploded. It That's just interesting. took off. I knew what I was doing because I had- You were providing some microbes that could break down glyphosate? You got it. That's you so it. cool. That's really great. I wrote about some of that in my book and there's actually some species that are um, pathogens that break down glyphosate quite well. And I think that's part of the reason why they were having trouble with them, even for humans, the microbes like the Pseudomonas aeruginosa, yep. um, you know, and Aspergillus, these things can break down glyphosate, but they can become toxic in, in the soil and they can also become toxic in the, in the gut um, because they get, uh, they, they have an advantage because they can break it down, but they're also serving the host. They're helping to clear the glyphosate. So you kind of have to have the good with the bad, you know? Yep, the good, bad, and the ugly. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I've also done some work with trying to break atrazine down. And mm, I don't know anything about that, but I do know atrazine is very toxic. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it actually um, screws around with the the sexual genetics. I know, I yeah, I know about Tyrone Hayes' work. Um, yeah, it's tadpoles, really um, amazing. Yeah, and again, it's we're finding that these, you know healthy soil systems that have the white rot fungi or saprophytic fungi um, along with these um, decomposers, degraders, insolubilizing bacteria, and obviously the protozoa that consume them, um, can break this stuff down at, a, at yeah. a very quick clip. But the problem is you need the consortium. You need all of these organisms working in harmony, like, like what you were talking mm -hmm. about. It's so important that diversity um, that mm -hmm. we lack now because of the our inability to have uh, clean soil, clean compost, clean food, um, that it's, it's, it's a real challenge to keep up with, with our gut health. Yeah, and of course also glyphosate disrupts, for example, the bacteria that facilitate the uptake of nitrogen into, this, into the plant. And of course all the minerals as well, sulfur goes way down. 
So uh, you get mineral deficiencies if you eat the plants that are grown in glyphosate. But the nitrogen fertilizers, that's a huge problem because the plant doesn't take it up effectively. And so the the rain washes it into the waterways and then you get eutrophication. eutrophication. Eutrophication, is that the right word? Eutrophication, yeah. Overgrowth of, you know, things like cyanobacteria and algae blooms and toxic algae when the heat, you know, when there's a lot of heat, uh, you get a mess in the waterways, like in, in Florida and in the, um, in the great Gulf. lakes. Yeah. All, and, all water. Yeah. And I, th I think it was Don Huber's work showing that's, that it also inhibits a lot of trace mineral uptake. Um, right. Remanganese and that, and that allows for a lot of fusarium to, to be, and, and some of the, uh, sudden death of soybeans was was related mm -hmm. yes he's done a lot of work on this root rock there's an orange globes in in florida that suffer from this uh uh some kind of infection with a fungus i think it is a, a um a root rot or something like that and he's and he's actually worked with farmers who have gotten rid of the glyphosate and found that their orange trees recovered right. from that fungus so i think a lot of these fungus infections of course the bees are suffering from a lot of fungus infections as well and i think that's also connected to glyphosate. Leighton brought up uh, atrazine in, in terms of it being an endocrine disruptor. And and I, I think that's a, a large part of Gilleric's work, uh, uh, Gilleric Seralini and, and, and his work. Can you comment a little bit more about how glyphosate um, can, can work in that similar? Absolutely. I Yeah, I suspect, you know, of course, when you see the frogs, uh, male frogs, XY frogs turning into fully functional females, when the tadpoles are exposed to atrazine, that's really, truly amazing. Mm. And I remember that I reported in my book about a study where they looked at atrazine and glyphosate with respect to sperm. They looked at sperm motility and, um, and also uh, sperm, let's see, motility and what's the other thing? Uh, just the counts, sperm counts and sperm motility. Mm -hmm. um, and they were very surprised to find the glyphosate was worse than atrazine in terms of affecting the sperm. Because uh, glyphosate is supposed to be so safe. I mean, a lot of people are finding, like there was another study where glyphosate was going to be the safe chemical they would compare everything else to. Right. And then they found out glyphosate was the worst one. So sure. it's so amazing that... Was that in you, humans or in, in reptiles or amphibians? Well, the, I don't think it was humans or reptiles. I, it was some kind of a study probably on a cell, cells in culture oh, or something okay. like that. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't remember actually the details, I'm sorry to say, but I do remember that they were surprised to see glyphosate was the worst because it was supposed to be the standard against they would measure, which they would measure everything else. Right. And it turned out to be the worst. So when people, I think a lot of times people just didn't bother to study glyphosate because it's safe. So what's the use of spending money on something you're just going to prove it's safe, you know? And so it really was Seralini's work in 2012, which was a super breakthrough, I think, where he mm -hmm. did low dose because they were, and they also had had rules, you know, they made up these rules and I think they were made for, for glyphosate back in the early days when it got approved. The industry decided that if you looked at animal studies for three months and you didn't see any evidence of harm, then you're good to go. You don't have to look any longer than three months. And the other thing they said was that if it looks like it's not toxic at some higher level, you don't have to look any lower than that. You can stop at that high level. And both of those rules, I think, were based on their observations that, in fact, glyphosate is a slow kill. So when you look at four months, you start to see problems. If you expose the animal for the whole life, you see lots of problems, but it takes time. And then, um, and then the low dose is the thing with endocrine disruptors. And so it's been found out that glyphosate is indeed an endocrine disruptor. They have this peculiar property that they're extremely toxic 
at very low levels. And when you, you have the high levels, it actually, it doesn't work the same way because at low levels, they, they fool the system into thinking that they are endo, uh, you know, endocrine Natural. acting mo molecules like, um, like the hormones, you know, they act like hormones and they totally disturb the hormonal system at low dose. But at higher doses, that doesn't happen. It's just a different concentration that doesn't happen. So um, they were clever to avoid those studies. But once Terralini showed low dose long term, uh, that the, the rats were miserable by the end. I mean, they had massive mammary tumors and, and kidney damage, liver damage, disrupted uh, sexual uh, problems in both genders, or a shortened lifespan, lots and lots of problems for the whole when you looked at the whole life. And uh, that was kind of a revolutionary paper that then got retracted and then it got republished, you know, and Seralini has had a hard time getting funding because of that. I mean, they really try to shut them down. So it's just sad that the industry attacks you if you say anything bad about their product. And of course, they, they control the uh, literature, they control the journals as well to not let people publish things that are going to make their product look bad. It's right. really, really hard to get those papers published. Yeah. Yeah. So important that open source is, is available now. Yes. Um, you know, it's interesting. Most of our, many of our audience are are cannabis lovers, mm. and consumers, and growers, and uh, um, and and cannabis is is very similar. It it is it is it is a biphasic right. um, um, molecule, and in, in, in THC at, at very low concentrations can be highly effective, and uh -huh. give the desired response. And at high at really high concentrations, it can almost give you the inverse. Uh, yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? It's really fascinating the, these uh, discoveries because. A lot of things in biology are very surprising. I think. I think I think it just mimics natural systems. So our, our mm -hmm. endocannabinoids. If you can put your THC concentration, your your phytocannabinoids at a, a very similar concentration to what your body would naturally produce, it, it's it's highly effective in the desired way of being effective. Yeah, and actually, I looked at uh, endocrine. I looked at the um, cannabinoids with respect to looking for an endogenous cannabinoid. Because I figured if we if we're so responsive to cannabinoids, we're probably our endogenous cannabinoid system is messed up. And it was interesting because I found that uh, arachidonic acid mm -hmm. actually gets converted to an endogenous cannabinoid, a natural cannabinoid that actually binds to the same receptors that the cannabis binds to. And um, that and that enzyme is one is in the class of cytochrome P450 enzymes that are disrupted by glyphosate. So I suspect that. We actually have a disrupted internal and endogenous cannabinoid system right. that makes us need this external supply more than we would if we if our own system was working. And I think that's true for a lot of the things that we take, like melatonin, for example. A lot of people take melatonin. Melatonin is comes out of that shikimate pathway, and of course, our gut microbes are making these aromatic amino acids, tryptophan, tyrosine, and phenylalanine, using that pathway that our cells don't have. And then those are precursors to all kinds of important things. First of all, they're coding amino acids. So they're part of the building blocks of proteins, but they also get converted into many of the neurotransmitters and, and hormones, yeah. you know, the thyroid hormone, uh, dopamine, serotonin, melatonin, um, it, melanin, the skin tanning agent, they all come out of that shikimate pathway. And so um, I think there's a lot of uh, deficiencies in all of those things because of the mi microbes being exposed to the glyphosate. It, it just the, the interconnections it's phenomenal because of course we have high levels of depression anxiety insomnia and you just named dopamine serotonin melatonin that's um, right it's it's wow uh, amazing when, when you say that um glyphosate destroys cytochrome p450 is it temporary destruction or is it a 
Well, it, I think what it does is disrupts the enzyme that restores NADP uh, plus to NADPH. It's a reducing enzyme that uh, the, the cytochrome P450 enzymes depend upon their binding to this NADP. That's a very interesting molecule that has very important roles in metabolism. Mm. And, uh, and the uh, cytochrome P450 enzymes depend upon it having that H there in order to do their job. And the enzyme that gives them that H gets busted by glyphosate. I have found uh, very interesting, like um, dehydrogenases. There's a whole, there's about a dozen dehydrogenases in E. coli that get suppressed by glyphosate. And, um, and dehydrogenases are very, very important for restoring that H on the NADPH. It's quite interesting, really interesting biology. And so I, glutathione, it plays a role with glutathione as well, because glutathione depends upon NADPH to get restored from being oxidized to being reduced. And it's the reduced form of glutathione that's uh, going to protect your liver from damage. And the glyphosate both reduces the amount of glutathione in the liver and also makes it too oxidized, like too much of it is oxidized. It doesn't have enough of it in that healthy reduced form. And that, again, I think is a there's a specific enzyme called glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase that's been shown to be suppressed by glyphosate and that glutathione depends upon that to get it that H back so that it can uh, to, to take away that convert it from being oxidized to reduced. Right. So dehydrogenases are pulling two hydrogen atoms off of something and giving them to something else. And often that something else is NADP plus. So all, all leading to um, massive inflammation, right? Exactly. And, yes. and so we're seeing this inflammation in, in, in our bodies. And, and of course, uh, we would argue, or you would argue, uh, we all would argue that it's happening in our soil. We are we are creating inflammation in our soil as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is interesting because CBD does turn off the cytochrome P450 as well, um, uh -huh. which is why you know folks who might be taking oh that's interesting because it's probably suppressing the endogenous production. It's a control, you know, you, ha you have it already, so you don't need more, right? It's providing it instead of the one that would be produced through the, through the P450. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, no, you might have to explain that to me. But... <laughs> it makes sense that it would suppress it, you know, yeah. that it would suppress the, that's what I worry about with any of these hormones that you take, like melatonin, yeah. it causes your body to shut down production because it says, oh, oh I'm yeah. getting it from the outside. I don't need it. So the way to shut down production of the endogenous version, so you don't sort of get too much is by turning off the cyp enzymes. Yeah. No. Interesting. You know, for, for me as a, you know, I, um, not, a, not a big fan of acetaminophen or, or ibuprofen, but, uh, but I say, if you're going to take it, take some CBD with it, because if, it, if it's going to last for eight hours, it'll last for 16 because CBD will slow down the breakdown of, of those. Uh, oh, to make it more effective. Yeah. You get better. <laughs> Perhaps. I don't know. Um, I don't know if Leighton's going to jump in, but I'll have one more question. I'll sign off for a bit. Uh, I, I, you know, we, we often do pick on glyphosate. Um, but, you know, a lot of, lot of I think, in, in, your, in your book, which, uh, uh, Ken, if you can throw up that book again, that, that, that's great. And it's through Chelsea Green, but, you know, many of us oh, have it. probably be. This? Yeah, huh? right. <clears throat> we're, we're picking on glyphosate, but we know that that Roundup is just more than glyphosate. And I was wondering right. if you want to comment on that as well. Right, I know. I, I learned that quite quickly from Seralini because he was doing a lot of work on the other ingredients in Roundup. And this is one of the things that's 
so unfair about their evaluation because they, they only studied glyphosate in isolation, not even glyphosate salts. I mean, already by making it a salt, they make it much more toxic. And the, uh, the, the um, formulation is a glyphosate salt, but it also has these other chemicals in it that act as surfactants and that are toxic in and of themselves. And they haven't been evaluated for toxicity. And so Cerellini has made a big deal out of the fact that these other ingredients are actually acutely much more toxic than glyphosate. Glyphosate's a slow kill. And so, um, but those things can really mess things up in a hurry. And so he's even claimed as much as a thousand times more toxic acutely than glyphosate. Um, but I believe glyphosate, you know, being a slow kill doesn't mean it doesn't kill you. It just takes time uh, and it develops all kinds of symptoms along the way that you don't want. You know, I think I think you, you hit the nail on the head with the with the beginning, and that is that it's all about the gut biome. Yes. And you you interrupt that, and and everything goes you know off cue. Yeah, it's amazing how much our gut microbes do for us, and they actually didn't realize this 20, 30 years ago. They weren't looking too hard at the gut microbiome, and that's probably because it was basically doing its job. It was working, and people didn't pay attention, and they didn't realize how much it was doing for the host until it started getting broken, and then you see all these problems that are coming up tracing back to the gut. Well, we were all rolling around the dirt and eating mud pies back then. <laughs> <laughs> and the dirt wasn't contaminated with glyphosate. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I did some uh, work with a <clears throat> uh, chief of staff for an ER uh, in, a, in a major hospital. And when he found out that I'd been playing around with protozoa um, and, and soil uh, biology, he asked me, you know, would it, would, it, if I'd ever heard of a fecal transplant and does she think that it would help um, restore the gut biome? And I'm like, well, of course it would. I mean, that's, I mean, when we were kids, we used to run out in the garden and just pick up a carrot and chomp it as we we're running through the, you know, the mm -hmm. field. So we yeah. were getting all of those healthy soil microbes. And long story short, uh, they didn't, they didn't go any further because they couldn't figure out how to monetize it. And this goes back to the whole medical system supporting. Mm -hmm the infrastructure of these giant corporations by keeping us sick so that they can make more money. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of horrifying. It's interesting that the same companies that produce the um, pharmaceutical drugs also produce the toxic uh, herbicides, you know, they're all in one big package. <laughs> Let me think about that. <laughs> <laughs> so have you looked at any of the other chemicals in uh, the roundup, um, on your own or is this, or do you have anything you can share with us about those other ingredients that they're hiding? Yeah, I, I actually have not really focused on that aspect because Seralini is doing such a good job with it. I just sort of let him take care of that. My interest is, is really focused on glyphosate and in part because glyphosate is such a unique chemical. And this is what really fascinated me about it because I believe its mechanism of toxicity is extraordinary and it's unique. And I talk about that in my book, um, I think that what's happening is that glyphosate is a glycine molecule. Glycine is the smallest amino acid building block of proteins. And glyphosate has extra material stuck on its nitrogen atom that makes it behave very differently from glycine. It's much bulkier, negatively charged. So it has very different behavior biophysically and biochemically. But the, um, I think what's happening is that it's actually getting stuck into the proteins by mistake in place of glycine. And this is happening throughout the body with certain uh, I've identified a particular uh, pattern uh, of the places to look for where a, an enzyme would have what I call a glyphosate susceptibility motif. 
because it has a glycine residue that's highly conserved at a place where it binds to the substrate. And if you replace that glycine with anything else, it breaks the molecule completely. And often the thing it binds to is phosphate or sulfate. So I have a very specific pattern to look for. And then I can identify, and this is where I connect dots. And I talk about a lot of this in my book that I can identify proteins that have been shown experimentally to be suppressed by glyphosate. And those proteins bind phosphate at a place where glycine is highly conserved. That's a consistent pattern with many of those proteins that have been shown to be suppressed. I mentioned the, the dehydrogenases because they bind NADPH. NADPH has three phosphates. So there's a lot of phosphate there to bind to glycine. And typically the phosphate binding sites have these motifs that contain two or three glycines in the actual pattern of the sequence of amino acids that is useful for binding to the phosphate that biology has found that is very useful to have glycine because they're looking for something small to give room for that phosphate to fit. Glyphosate takes its methylphosphonate piece and sticks it right where the phosphate's supposed to go. And then the phosphate can't get close, the enzyme doesn't work. I think that's the, a very key principle of many of the uh, effects of glyphosate on specific uh, enzymes. And it works beautifully for EPSB synthase. It exactly matches uh, that pattern. And there's a, a human protein called PEPCK, phosphoenolpyruvate carboxykinase, a very important human protein that actually can convert fats and proteins into sugar. And it's really critical in the liver when you are exercising a lot and not eating, your blood sugar drops too low. That enzyme is really important for producing sugar from the liver to help keep your blood sugar levels high enough so you won't faint or even die from a coma. You know, So they're very critical enzyme, very important when the baby's born, all of a sudden that enzyme kicks in because the baby needs to be able to produce blood sugar from proteins and other uh, fats and proteins that it's eating. And um, that enzyme binds to PEP at a place where glycine is highly conserved, which is the exact same thing that happens with EPSP synthase. It binds to PEP, it's the same substrate at a place where glycine is highly conserved. And that the, the gene that they insert into the GMO crops has that glycine replaced with alanine, that that particular microbe has alanine there instead of glycine, which makes all the difference because it no longer matches the code. Glyphosate, it's completely insensitive to glyphosate when you do that, when you substitute alanine. That's very strong. And, and the Monsanto folks discovered that, they know that. And so when you, um, when you add all that together, it becomes very, very clear to me that I believe the way, the most toxic aspect of glyphosate is that it does this. It, it substitutes for glycine in all kinds of different proteins and messes them up. Go ahead. I was just going to quickly ask, and this might be out of your scope, um, but do you know that there are some naturally resistant uh, or have, have become uh, resistant to her uh, Roundup? Uh, I, I believe there was a perennial ryegrass, maybe. I, I, I haven't followed it in a while. Mm, I remember that too. Yeah. Do you know if they, they also have, um, have replaced the uh, amino acid with alanine? I think that's true for a lot of them. I think a lot of those, uh, that's how they discovered this. Um, in fact, they did a study. It was a Dow Chemical. Uh, Dow Chemical and someone else together did a study, which was really fascinating. They did GMO. They did this um, CRISPR technology. They could use CRISPR to, to just change the uh, sequence in a protein. Yep. And they took a, uh, this EPSP synthase and they actually replaced the glycine with alanine using CRISPR. Right. And then they showed that it was completely insensitive to glyphosate when they did that. 
And then they were able to tweak the area around there to take another amino acid that was too big and make it smaller because alanine is going to add an extra methyl group. So they were able to modify something else nearby mm -hmm. to make that part smaller so there'd be more room for the phosphate that's getting crowded out by the methyl. And they were able to produce a version of the enzyme through CRISPR technology. This is the plant's own enzyme that was resistant to glyphosate and worked quite well um, as far as working as the enzyme is intended to work by tweaking both the glycine and something else nearby. So they were uh, proposing to use this technology to produce a quote unquote non-GMO crop because you've modified the plant's own gene. It's yeah. no longer foreign. And now you don't have to call it a GMO crop. And so they were hoping to use CRISPR technology to do that to all kinds of different plants and produce all kinds of different opportunities for glyphosate resistance. Mm -hmm. Which really says that to me that they understand that this is what glycine does. The industry denies that this is possible. So I've, I've been in a battle with them. Okay. They're not uh, going, they're not suing me. So I think they actually, you know, I mean, if they really <laughs> believed I was wrong, they could sue me. Right? Mm -hmm. So they know I, you're don't, right. I don't want to invite them to do that, but. Uh, so still, I mean, the, the shikimate pathway is still being affected, but, but, but another aspect is, is this um, inability for the proper reduction to happen and therefore you, you essentially ruin the enzyme that would allow the microbes to get what they need to be healthy for, your, for, for them to do what you need them right. to do in your human Body. Yeah, when it when it damages the microbes, the microbes can't do everything else they're supposed to do as well. So it's not just that pathway that gets affected. Right. And the whole microbiome becomes imbalanced, and then you get into all kinds of trouble. There's another whole problem with the uh, with the digestive system because when you have don't have enough of those enzymes that can break down the proline, you end up with these proline peptides. I mentioned that earlier for the gluten intolerance. Mm -hmm. And you're supposed to break down all the peptides, and then you absorb the amino acids that come from them through the gut, in the, in the mid gut. And, but then what happens is the peptides stick around and they make their way. Some of them get out into the blood and cause you know immune reactions and get you autoimmune disease, but other ones go on to the colon. The, uh, the entire peptide goes to the colon. And then there are other microbes in the colon that can break them down, but then you can't absorb the amino acids anymore. And in fact, what happens is the whole thing gets broken all the way down to nitrogen. So the, you know, the amino acids have nitrogen the nitrogen gets freed up and becomes ammonia and ammonia is very basic. So it raises the pH of the gut. And then that messes up all the microbes that love acid environment. And those are the ones that make the um, short chain amino acids that the, that the colonocytes love to eat. So the microbes that are supposed to make those, uh, you know, acetate, butyrate, uh, propionate, those three short chain amino acids, they don't get enough of them. Fructose gets converted into that, into those amino acids. And also roughage, all those things, these, these, uh, these microbes normally can make all these wonderful things that the colonocytes love. But now none of that happens. So you get too much roughage, you get, you know, uh, damage to the gut and, and fructose doesn't get broken down. So then the fructose goes to the liver and the liver has to cope with fructose and turn it into fat. So you get fatty liver disease. I mean, all these things go south when you have this problem of not being able to digest those proteins that have the proline <laughs> where the lactobacillus, you know, got killed by the glyphosate and they can't help you make uh, break down the proline. So it's, it's really quite a cascade. I write about that in my book. It took me a long time on that gut chapter and I'm proud of it because it really, I had to do a lot of reading and many papers that were unintelligible, just beautiful charts of all these different colors of different microbes. It's really difficult to, uh, it's a tough subject to study, but I think I got the answer 
um, in that general sense of what's happening, that the pH of the gut gets too high. And that's been shown experimentally. Mm -hmm. um, reduced acetate and, uh, and too high pH. And that's what's been happening with the infants too. Back in 1920, the infants had um, a very different distribution in their gut from what they have today. And, uh, and this is because of this. Uh, and then they said it was associated with, I found papers on that associated with the change in the pH. When the pH gets too high, the butyrate doesn't get made. The colonocytes get sick and then you can get colon cancer, you know, so. And, and you know, we, we do this all the time. And these are whether sometimes they're even organic farming practices as well. Right. So um, we can often use manures that are very high in nitrate nitrogen. So you have uh, NO3 minus. You can be using things like calcium carbonate, CaCO3. So a lot of once again, oxidizing. Um, mm -hmm elements and you're you're definitely going to be affecting the ph uh, of the soil leading to that you know in, inflammation of the soil and 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 leading to not having the right microbes to be able to re to provide those nutrients in a reduced form for the plant to uptake right yeah when you can't those uh, reducing enzymes are so important for maintaining the health and for preventing oxidative damage right so those are being screwed up by the glyphosate um, I think that's a major, major problem with it. There's a great paper on E. coli that showed, they exposed the E. coli to glyphosate and they did a massive study of all the different enzymes, proteins that E. coli produced and seeing which ones were suppressed by the glyphosate. And that's a very uh, useful um, paper for me. And that, that's where I found all those dehydrogenases that were suppressed. And succinate dehydrogenase has been shown experimentally in humans or, or I think it's humans to be suppressed by glyphosate, certainly in rat studies, succinate dehydrogenase, which is an incredibly important dehydrogenase in the mitochondria. And when that enzyme is suppressed, you get, you get cancer. That's can link to, link to cancer. Well, this just makes so much more sense now that we're, you're communicating this kind of information. We knew it was bad, but how, and now you basically explained it to, to the masses that this this is why this is happening yeah and that's what i think and it's very fascinating it's a biology actually so i've enjoyed that aspect i love biology you know it's so interesting yeah well that's what we're all about right ken mm. <laughs> <laughs> i to me a little <laughs> depressing part of this is 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 most likely the fact that it's a biphasic low concentrations can be in in many ways more toxic than a high concentration mm, I, I know that's really scary that's you know especially for somebody who tries to eat uh, you know organic biodynamic um you know non-gmo foods uh which which you know i should i should mention like like sorry yeah non a lot of non-gmo foods would have a lot of um uh, still could have a lot of residue of, of Roundup as a desiccant. You had mentioned early that uh, Roundup is often used as a desiccant. Um, and and so, so it would often be applied on, on, on uh, non-GMO crops. Yeah, on wheat, in fact, that's where I think it's getting into the wheat. Uh, and wheat-based wheat products have tested high on glyphosate in many cases. Right, I'm, a, I'm a, unfortunately a, a whiskey lover. And, <laughs> uh, you, can't, you can't really find an organic whiskey and I can't afford any whiskeys uh, that were done before uh, the invention of, of uh, Roundup. So um, I think almost the barley that is being used in whiskeys would, would have uh, Roundup. Uh, mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, 
Well, they're using they're using them as a drying agent. Yeah. Yes, that's right. On the on the wheat, the barley, the oats. Actually, there's a lot of glyphosate in oats, and that worries me because kids eat oat-based cereals and oatmeal, oatmeal cookies, and so they're going to get. Thought, we thought oats were good for us, right? They <laughs> 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 used to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know that all of this brings up another question, and I don't know if you've been in the box stores lately, but they all advertise five times strength. Roundup, so it's five times stronger than. Oh you no, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, so my hypothesis was that more and more microbes in nature um, are learning to break it down and use it as a energy source. But now that we're talking, I'm maybe thinking that's that's completely wrong. It's in it's not the direction. There are certainly microbes that can do that. In fact, cyanobacteria they, they are so successful. In, in situations where there's glyphosate because they can break it down, turn it into phosphate fertilizer. So that's how you get this, all this overgrowth of the algae because the cyanobacteria are feeding them with nitrogen and phosphorus extracted from glyphosate. But they're basically more or less an aquatic microbe that's very rare. Well, that, that's true. They don't infect the gut. So that's fortunate, but they do, but they do cause the blue green algae to produce toxins that can kill the dog if it gets in the water. You know, that's so right. And fish and everything else. So it, there's this, this crazy balance that maybe we should have a little bit more uh, algae in our diets, but not enough so that it creates those toxic compounds. Mm-hmm. And that leads to the next question is, um, are there a secondary tertiary negative metabolites that are coming from that breaking down of glyphosate into these smaller components? Yeah, well, AMPA is a, is a very common breakdown product of, of glyphosate, and, and AMPA still has that CP bond, which is the tough bond that most microbes can't break down. If a microbe can break that CP bond, car- carbon phosphorus together attached, um, if a microbe can break that down, they can turn glyphosate into nutrients. Otherwise, you're stuck with AMPA, which is also toxic. So phosphate solubilizing bacteria might be able to do that? Possible, yeah. So I, my whole, the reason I'm here is, uh, first of all, I went through a horrible divorce and decided that I was tired of just making money to make money. I wanted to do something that filled my soul, made me feel better about you know who I was, and that I was actually doing something to give back. So I fell back into my childhood passion of, of fish and plants and the relationship to the two of them. So I started studying um, fish manure, uh, and there really isn't a fish manure. Like I gotta start, I gotta find another word for this because <laughs> as soon as that fish releases this, other than tilapia, it goes into solution. So it's mm-hmm. there's nothing there's nothing like you can put your finger on. Even though you filter it out, you're, what you're getting out of that filtration is protozoa, uh, biology, uh, all different types of bacteria, um, some fungi, some algae, um, some plant matter. So it really isn't a manure. But that being said, the fish has two stomachs. The fish has a stomach on the inside, which where it's consuming its feed. But it also has um, biofilm on the outside, which is a basically... Uh, demineralizer. It's pulling the minerals out of the water. And one of the interesting things that we learned learned just as of recently is that you have all of these these organisms, these phosphate solubilizing, potassium solubilizing, Mm. biology present in the water column. And, you know, I've always, I've done a lot of um, education and presentations in the last uh, 
seven years or so. And, you know, one of the, one of the biggest things I've always pushed on, on to try to get people to think of why and how important organic is and, and soil restoration is, is due to the fact that when humans had their mass expansion to the point where it literally on every continent, every corner of the world, um, prior to that, there was mass migrations. So those mass migrations were bringing the aquatic microbes up onto the soil and the terrestrial biology back into the water. So we were constantly um, re-inoculating everything around, or they were re-inoculating everything around them. So the interface between, you know, these these different uh, degraders and solubilizers was was you know integral. It was you know homogenous amongst the planet, and so. That being said, when we apply a really good fish brew uh, or, or a compost extract, we do get an incredible plant response, not only in growth and production of the primary, secondary, and tertiary metabolites that we're looking for, but also nutrient uptake, mineral uptake. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Everything so, gets better, yeah, when there's a natural, uh, healthy environment in the soil. I think the soil has so many analogies with the gut. Exactly. It's, it's the same. And I think, you know, when we were, we were evolving, we, we weren't washing anything, right? Mm -hmm. There was no such thing as a hand sanitizer or detergents. So yeah, we were, and when you, when you eat the crops that are grown with the manure as fertilizer, then you're picking up cobalamin, vitamin B12. Otherwise, if you're vegetarian, you won't get vitamin B12. Yeah, so true. And everything that we ate was eating healthy too. And, and, mm -hmm. and getting those natural biomes built by whether it was accidentally eating some sand or some dirt when they were um, foraging uh, to the, the actual plants themselves that had those vitamins and minerals that are being blocked out as a result of these uh, interrupters or disruptors. Mm -hmm. I should say. Yeah. So do you think that, that the compound itself is also affecting uh not only the diversity of of the microbes in the soil, but perhaps the um, the ability for the microbes to um, evolve because they're evolving at such a fast rate. Right. Um, yeah. do, do you think that it's actually affecting or degrading that evolutionary process? Yeah, that's a good question. I would think it would accelerate the evolution. I always feel like stressors make things evolve faster. And that's how you can get uh, even the growth introduction of new species under tremendous stress. So you sort of have these, in looking at the history of life, you have these moments of crisis where there's some meteor that wipes out a whole bunch of stuff. And then you have all this blossoming that happens after that with all these new species appearing. So there's kind of a rebirth that goes on after a very... Um, toxic experience. And I, I really think right now the humans are definitely introducing a major stressor on the entire ecosystem, which is probably going to drive the evolution of new species, I would imagine. There's certainly new variants. Well, as soon as we get out of the way. <laughs> yeah, I know. We're going to either die out or we're going to have to change our ways. I really don't think we're going to make it if we can, if we continue along this path. And I think, unfortunately, by default, we're not going to change. The system is. It does so, look that way. It's so it's difficult so, to get people to wake up. Right. It's so entangled, and people have been dumbed down to the point where they just listen to whatever's being talked to them or told to them or what they read. And yeah, it's, it's really scary if we become too stupid to realize what's happening to us, right? That we can't yeah. even think well enough to figure that out. 
No, no, and most people can't. It's it's so sad. It's like you, trying to have a conversation with people. All they want to talk about is you know drama and, and what the Kardashians yeah. did. And it's like no, no, no. You're missing the whole point. There's so much going on around you right now that you need to be aware of so that you can say something or stand up behind somebody. I because think that's a that's a great lead into uh, you know in in the intro just describing uh, some of the work and some of the thought evolution that uh, Stephanie has brought. Um, I'd love for you to share a little bit more. You're talking to somebody who reluctantly, but lemmingly like, um, you know, has consumed uh, three doses of an mRNA vaccine. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and is currently taking 10 milligrams of Crestor, um, you know, as a oh, staff, boy. right? Uh -huh. um, you know, lar largely, largely because of the fear that South Asians uh, tend to have uh, a lot of heart uh, cardiovascular issues. Um, but you know, I, I, I really, I love the work that you bring out. Um, I love to be challenged in my thoughts and stuff. So, so I, I look, you know, if if you feel comfortable sharing some of your other work, I'd be happy to discuss it because it to me it leads right into what Layton was saying. We just, we just can't. We have to stand up. For what we believe and challenge it, because we may be being fed um, some disinformation that is leading us down a pathway of uh, uh, destruction. Yes, I think so. As soon as I uh, became aware that they were going into this warp speed uh, operation that was going to produce an mRNA vaccine and get a vaccine in every arm as fast as possible and take one year to, or even less than a year to do what should take 12 years. I got really, really worried because I, I just I don't trust any of this technology. We're rushing so fast towards an absolute train wreck, I think, with all the stuff that we're doing. And we're becoming so um, we're very skilled in doing extraordinary things in biology, but we don't know what we're doing. We don't we are unaware of the danger and we're not willing to take the time to find out what that danger is. And so we just sort of release it onto the entire population and cross our fingers and hope for the best. You know, I felt like way too rushed. I was very, very nervous about those vaccines from the get-go. And I started looking into the technology even before they were released. So they were under development and they were talking about warp speed and I could see it was coming like a train wreck. And I started digging into the research literature. I didn't know anything, of course, about the mRNA technology before that, but uh, I like a puzzle. <laughs> so this was another puzzle to take on. And I quickly became very, very worried about those vaccines. I, I certainly refused to get them. Um, luckily, MIT granted me a religious exemption, so I'm very grateful for that. So I haven't gotten the vaccines, but I, uh, I've become very focused on those, as you may know, for the past two or three years, it's been my main, uh, the main thing I'm studying. And they're very um, hard to understand what they're doing, actually. It's very complicated. But there's enough things about them that are extremely worrying that I definitely would never trust uh, myself to get one. And of course, we're seeing the evidence as well with people, you know, lots of these sudden deaths showing up in young people, uh, much greatly increased um, counts of various kinds of disabilities. You know, Edward Dowd is doing some really good work. And um, it's, it's very clear to me that these vaccines are very, very dangerous. And uh, different people react differently. Some people are fine. It looks like they, they breeze right through it. Um, but repeated vaccination gets you worse and worse. And so by the time you've had four or five shots, you know, you get the second and third booster, uh, you've really worn out your immune system at that point. And you're getting into a system of, um, it, it basically, um, 
you know, the, the spike protein is so toxic and it's so, and the vaccine is so well designed to uh, get your cells to produce this spike protein. They're, your human cells are producing a foreign protein. And I think what's happening is those muscle cells are, uh, they're, they're overwhelmed with all the spike protein they can't stop producing. And they ship it out in the form of these little exosomes, which are little lipid particles, a lot like the original vaccine, only more sophisticated because the human cells know how to put things in those exosomes that are kind of instructions. Like I'm giving you this bomb and then here's some instructions on how you should deal with it. And those instructions include in introducing inflam inflammation. And then those exosomes travel, I believe, along nerve fibers. I think they're going from the muscle in the arm down the axon of the motor neuron that controls the arm's movement in the spinal cord. And then the spinal cord neuron is relaying them up to the brainstem. I see so much evidence of inflammation of nerves every, all over the body, but especially in the head, the vagus nerve, um, the auditory nerve. You've got the olfactory nerve you can't smell. You've got ringing in the ears, all these symptoms that are showing up. And you've got headaches from the trigeminal nerve. You've got Bell's palsy from the facial nerve. And of course, the vagus nerve, all kinds of symptoms that are related to the vagus nerve. Inflammation in all those nerves that I think is caused by exosomes that are arriving, delivering, not just the spike protein, not just the microRNAs that are going to induce the inflammation, but also the messenger RNA that makes the spike protein. You can, the cells put that messenger RNA intact into the exosome and ship it up to the brain. So it's really, really frightening to me when I think about this is kind of, I've been doing a lot of research and this is where, I, where I've landed. This is what I think, that that's the primary mechanism by which it's causing these horrendous problems with the, with the nerves. And, and of course it causes neuropathy as well and, and neurological diseases of various sorts. People have gotten ALS-like symptoms and uh, CJD-like symptoms. That's Creutzfeldt-Jakob, which is the mad cow disease. The spike protein is a prion-like protein that triggers other proteins to misfold, which accelerates the rate of Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. I mean, it's just horrendous. So I think uh, we're going to see an accelerated increase. We're already having increasing rates of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. They're all going up. And I think that's in large part, or at least in part due to glyphosate, because I think that's causing the neurological diseases. Now we have on top of the glyphosate, we have the mRNA. And that, that protein, it's designed to be so sturdy that the mRNA can't be broken down. So it sticks around for months. Uh, and normally a messenger RNA molecule is made by the human cell and it does its job and it gets out of the way in a few hours. It lasts a few hours. But these mRNA molecules with all this methyl pseudouridine in there, they don't get broken down. And they, they, they get shipped around in those exosomes and they get delivered all over the body. They get into the blood and, they, and then they, the spike protein Furin cleavage site knocks off the S1 unit, which goes and attaches to ACE2 receptors on the endothelial cells that are lining the blood vessels, and that causes inflammation there. You get leaky uh, vessels, and then you get all kinds of other problems. So, like blood, you get blood clots and things like that. So it's just uh, horrendous. I think it's horrendous. So that was my question: was blood clots? I mean, they're talking about these horrifically huge blood clots in people's bodies that that took it. Now is have you have you looked into any of that? Well, I have, and I think that's connected to its uh, prion-like behavior. Um, the, the spike protein uh, causes other proteins to misfold, and that's what gives you all these neurological diseases with amyloid beta and, and alpha-synuclein. Um, those proteins can misfold in association with those serious neurological diseases, but you also have proteins in the blood that can misfold, and that's what's going to uh, trigger 
a cascade that's going to cause the, the blood clots to form. And of course, also the inflammation. So you've got the endothelial cells have these ACE2 receptors. The S1 is on all those exosomes that are floating around in the blood. The furin cleavage site, that, that's a really unusual aspect of this particular mRNA. And that furin cleavage site allows furin, the enzyme, to cut it in half and, and break off the S1 piece. So the S2 is still stuck there, but the S1 piece in the membrane of the cell that's been making or in the exosome, the S2 piece can circulate freely and go bind to any ACE2 receptor that it binds. And the endothelial cells have those ACE2 receptors and it disables them. It disables them and then that causes inflammation. And then that causes tissue damage. And then that's gonna cause leakage, cap, you know, capillary leakage, which is gonna trigger the whole uh, thrombosis response to try to get the blood clots to, to, to plug the leaks. And then of course the blood clots get loose and they go places and cause pulmonary thrombosis, so pulmonary embolism, which can kill you. And all of those things, I mean, I looked at thrombosis, it's amazing. When you look at the VARS database, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, we have a paper on this. We have seven charts in that paper, seven tables of various uh, aspects of the symptoms that are showing up in this uh, vaccine adverse event reporting system the US maintains. And uh, thrombosis, I think was 99% of the uh, cases of thrombosis associated with any vaccine in 2021, 99% were associated with the COVID vaccines, 1% with all the other vaccines put together. Wow, that is just crazy. I believe certain states um, are now preventing you from doing the tests that would test for thrombosis. That's interesting. I know they're very reluctant to do any kind of post-mortem analysis of these people because they don't want to find out what they might reveal. Yeah, yeah they don't want to know. I, 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 I promise our audience, we will, we will try to move into some more positive stories and <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe things we can do to you know, boost our immune systems, uh, boost our, our gut microbiome and, and whatnot as well, right? Right. You're yeah, gonna... I can I can certainly give some recommendations that I have uh, for how to stay healthy. Yeah, I've well, been formulating well, through the years. <laughs> have we have we have we hit rock bottom right now, lately? One more, one more. So the whole understanding of how mRNA breakdown is huge, right? You stated that it usually is, it can be minutes, seconds, hours, but nothing yeah. like this is ever. Not Usually not more than hours. And whereas this is two months later, they did a study, they still found mRNA making spike protein in the lymph node, you know, under the arm. Still Do we there. any clue as to how long it could potentially stay in the body? Well, I think it could stay indefinitely if it in fact gets converted into DNA which I think is happening. And we have a paper on that as well. That's really, really interesting science. But oh in God. fact, I don't know if you know about this, but Kevin McKernan, have you heard about Kevin McKernan's work? Yeah, no. Oh, well, we know Kevin, uh, but I haven't uh, through he's, medicinal he's found, yeah. he's found some amazing things and he's a, he's an expert. He knows how to look at these things, you know, and figure out what's in there. And he discovered that there's DNA, double-stranded DNA contamination in the vaccines way much higher levels than they claimed and much higher levels than are claimed to be safe. And what this means, it could be in fact, double-stranded DNA coding for the spike protein already ready-made in the vaccine. And if that's the case, you don't need reverse transcriptase because there's all this discussion about always oh, the reverse transcriptase. It turns out the human cells do produce reverse transcriptase, which is like the, um, you know, the HIV has this reverse transcriptase that can convert RNA into DNA. 
these sort of special viruses. But the human cells can do that too. And in fact, cancer cells do it very well. They express this enzyme that converts RNA into DNA. So when you have that message RNA hanging around in the cell for a long, long time, uh, all you need is that reverse transcriptase to convert it into DNA. And then you have these DNA plasmids, which can actually be shipped out inside those exosomes. So you can just ship around the DNA, not the RNA, but the DNA in the plasmids. In theory, nothing, this hasn't been proven. And, um, and then any cell can pick it up and start making a spike protein indefinitely for as long as they hang on to those plasmids. Because those can copy themselves. The DNA can copy itself. That's the big difference. The RNA can't. It's a, it's a dead end because it, it can't copy. Right. It's a, it's a page in the book and it goes away or supposed to go away. Yeah, eventually it gets broken down, but it takes a really long time because it's so sturdy the way they've built it. So that means that pretty much the world's blood supply is tainted. I think so. Pretty horrific. All right, now let's change the subject because that's got to <laughs> do something pretty, optimistic. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's got to be pretty close to rock bottom. So. Well, it's a beautiful day here in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> As it is here in Southern California. <laughs> yeah, how's that weather, right? Yeah, <laughs> always exactly. a good way. Right. Um, so, uh, so how, what do you suggest to people who um, have had the vaccine like uh, that, that? Is there anything that they can do to yeah. purge or, or at least slow down? Yeah, I guess mostly I've been you know, reading about a lot of the, a lot of the literature recommended by various doctors who are trying to find things to treat. Um, and they certainly have some good ideas. Um, some of them are saying ivermectin, they're taking ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. As, if, for example, long COVID or vaccine injury, they kind of call that the same thing. These, these lingering symptoms that go on forever that actually have a lot uh, of connectivity to these nerves in the, um, in the head and, the, uh, and the, the brainstem, the nuclei that control, uh, high level control of your heartbeat, your blood pressure, consciousness, you know, breathing, all those things are controlled by these nerve centers in the brain that I think are getting inflamed because of these exosomes that are coming in there and messing them up. I think that's a, and that's maybe lingering on indefinitely because there might be this DNA, who knows? I mean, that's a possibility. That's really scary, that it would be very difficult to get rid of it. Um, people are suggesting things that can break down the spike protein. So you can have enzymes like natto kinase. You may have heard of natto kinase. Or natto, you know about natto? No, no. no okay. Yeah, I'm not. Familiar natto with is a is a uh, <laughs> a food that's really hard to get used to. I've seen it, it looks really sticky, and it's it's a um, it's a fermented food. It it doesn't oh. look delicious. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Yeah. I think I would have a hard time eating it. I've never had it, but it's a fermented food, and um, and and very healthy actually. You know, the Japanese eat a lot of natto, and of course they have a longevity, and it might be a reason why they one of the reasons why they're so healthy. Sure. Um, and it has this enzyme natokinase, which can break down the spike protein. It has these enzymes that specialize in um, breaking down amino acids that are uh, to help to break down the spike protein. So uh, people are, uh, practitioners have encouraged their patients to take natokinase as a way to help to remove the spike protein. Personally speaking, I think you, you need to focus on in improving the health of your immune system. Mm -hmm. And part of that is improving the ability for your body to break things down in general, not just to break down the spike protein, but to have the lysosomes working well to break down debris, cellular debris in general, which would include the spike protein. Because when you can't 
when your lysosomes aren't working well, and in particular, when your lysosomes aren't working well in your immune cells, because the immune cells break down, like when a cell dies because it's been poisoned by the spike protein, there's all that stuff, and that's going to cause trouble. The, all the things that are released from that cell are going to cause trouble to the body if the immune cells can't sort of eat it up. Basically, the immune cells are supposed to clear it, clear the dead cells. This happens in disease as well when you get infected with a virus. The cell becomes makes lots of viruses and then it kind of screams for help and the cell and the, and the immune cells come in and they program the death of that cell they help that cell to orchestrate its death in such a way as to protect from whatever's going to happen if that cell just explodes and releases all its stuff into the environment that's going to be really bad you know all the dna that's in the cell gets broken down there's a systematic process by which the cell closes shop through apoptosis and right. the immune cell orchestrates, helps it to figure out how to do that. And if the immune cell isn't healthy enough to do that, then you've got huge trouble with these cells that are being poisoned by the spike protein. They die, they release their stuff, and now you've got God knows what going on. Yeah, that was that was something I was going to ask next, is that those those cells actually decompose kind of like compost files. They break that Exactly. Right. They need to be decomposed in a proper way. And the, and the right. body has really sophisticated mechanisms to it's, do that. It's amazing. But immune cells get damaged. It's amazing when it's functioning. But if, if yeah. like you said, if it goes off the rails, it just compounds and compounds and compounds. So right. that being said, I, I had no idea that it was that bad that, that, a dead cell would now be left trapped floating around in the, the, the soup, so to say. Um, right. So what's interesting with the vaccines is that they, there's an amazing study that came out recently looking at the booster shot and they were, and the, the vaccine induces tremendous, it has, it's very good at doing what it's supposed to do, which is to produce IgG antibodies to the spike protein. It does that very well. And it actually produces such high antibodies that it's typical to what people end up with when they get severe disease. So people who have a mild case of COVID, their body doesn't bother to produce those antibodies because they aren't needed. They cleared the virus without them. But those IgG antibodies are, are dangerous if there's too many of them, because that's how you get autoimmune disease. Mm. And so you get the first shot and the second shot, you get sky high IgG antibodies. And then over time, after the second shot, your antibodies start to change into uh, IgG antibodies that are no longer effective. There's this uh, category called IgG4, and they evolve, they, they change into, they develop into IgG4 over time. And then when you get the booster shot, IgG4 goes through the roof. So you have way too much IgG4, which is counterproductive. It actually, it, it doesn't work properly to keep this, the, the virus from infecting the cell. And it gets in the way. It sort of blocks the good antibodies that would help you to protect you from the virus. It blocks them. It's the exact opposite of the other IgGs. It's so interesting. I only learned about this recently. I've been madly reading about the immune system lately. It's super complicated. I'm, I haven't figured it out yet, but I'm getting there, you know? And so IgG4 um, becomes, it gets really high after the booster and then it continues to go up even more over time after the booster. So this, what's this telling me is that it's sort of saying, the immune system is saying, hey, enough already. You know, we know this stuff is really toxic. But if we try to actually respond to it, we're going to get so sick, we can't do that. So we have to shut down the response and just let it go. There's kind of a, a sense of we just got to let this thing go. If it's just going to come at us, we're just going to, we can't fight it because fighting it might kill us, you know. And so you, it, what it does is it suppresses your immune system. So you can't, you can't handle other things as well. So you get sick with a cold, you know, you get pneumonia. I mean, you just have more susceptibility to disease. 
the immune cells are unable to fight the cancer. So you get increased risk to cancer. I mean, all these things, autoimmune disease is through the roof because you've got all these IgG antibodies that are attacking. Spike protein has many sequences that resemble sequences in human proteins that are associated with all kinds of different autoimmune diseases. So those IgG antibodies are really dangerous for inducing autoimmune disease. But if you get the IgG4, that's going to block them from doing that. So you're trying to protect. Your, your immune system is making a new executive decision to protect from the autoimmune disease by blocking the antibodies from attaching to the human proteins. But at the same time, it blocks them from attacking the, the spike protein yeah. and the virus. So the hydro, oh God, I'm going to butcher this, the Ivec, ivermectin and the hydro, whatever it's called. Hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. Thank you. Um, how do those help in, in the situation? If you, you've, you've Yeah, I'm actually not sure. I've read some about them and I don't exactly understand how they work. I think it might just be kind of experimentally, the evidence is that they protect you. Uh, and so if they protect you from the disease, uh, maybe they protect you. Maybe they help you somehow in the same way to protect you from long COVID. I think, I don't know that that there's a good explanation. I, I don't know what the good explanation is, let me put it that way, for how they work. But, you know, natokinase is clear because it can break down the spike protein. And I recommend other things. Vitamin K2, by the way, is very interesting. Uh, I've been looking into that. And vitamin K2 is um, uh, people who have low vitamin K2 end up with calcified arteries that K2 protects from calcification. Right. And all of that is a risk factor for bad outcome with COVID-19. So they've found an association between low K2 and severe disease in COVID-19. Sure. And vitamin K2 comes from, for example, natto kinase has natto, has lots of vitamin K2. Yeah, do and so do fermented foods. That's in, oh, that's what I was going to ask you. Typically, um, any fermented Yeah, all the good stuff. (laughs) Yeah, the apple cider vinegar, sauerkraut, uh, sour cream, um, cheese, all the all the cheeses, um, and um, stinky tofu. If you're familiar with that, that's a Chinese dish. It's a lot like uh, natto kind of natto. Yeah. So uh, all of those are really healthy. Um, With respect to vitamin K2, they supply you with vitamin K2, and also animal-based products like liver is a good source of vitamin K2. Mm-hmm. and seafood um so you can get it from uh, animal-based products but um and then this fermented from the bacteria the fermented products one thing really interesting to me and i'm going to share this because this is just one of these puzzles that i fussed with um a while ago i found really interesting you know africa has had a very uh, low mortality rate from COVID 19 much much better than any other continent really good response to COVID 19 and what i discovered um was i was looking at um the uh, tuberculosis, mycobacterium tuberculosis, that bug, which is endemic in Africa. A lot of people in Africa end up with uh, issues with tuberculosis from that microbe. And 80% of the population in Africa is infected with a latent uh, version of that bacterium that's not causing any trouble. So um, they just have it around in their body. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I found a, a, a picture of Africa color-coded with respect to the uh, death rate from tuberculosis in the different countries. And then I found another picture of Africa color-coded for the rate of COVID-19 infection in the various countries. And when you look at those two images, you can see that they're a mirror image of each other. The countries that have greater death from from tuberculosis have lower infection with COVID-19. It's a mirror image. It's really quite beautiful, quite striking. And um, so 
what's really interesting to me is that glyphosate has been patented as an antimicrobial agent. And specifically, mycobacterium tuberculosis was listed as one of the microbes that it can kill. It, 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 proposing it to take it as an antibiotic to protect you from mycobacterium tuberculosis. And the United States has, if you look over time with the rise in glyphosate usage, there's been a fall in the number of people dying from tuberculosis. In other words, perhaps it's working as an antibiotic to protect you from this microbe. Now, where am I going with all of this? This microbe produces a unique uh, version, vitamin K2 sulfate, menaquinone sulfate. It produces that. So I think when it's a latent, in its latent form, it's actually providing the host with a very, very important nutrient. And menaquinone is really useful in the mitochondria to keep them safe, the antioxidant and that sort of thing. And the energy production, it's a really uh, useful molecule. And the sulfate is also super, super important because glyphosate messes up sulfate like there's no tomorrow. So this thing is providing both sulfate. It's the only micro, the only species known to make a sulfated version of menaquinone. So I think that that particular microbe, when it's a latent infection in your body, is actually doing something good for you. And in fact, protecting you from um, COVID by virtue of supplying you with this really important nutrient. So there are, in fact, people recommend K2, but also all these other kinds of quinones and things that can uh, help you uh, in a similar way to improve your mitochondrial function uh, to maintain energy for the uh, for the immune cells to be able to fight off the disease. So. I find all of that really fascinating. And I actually think um, it makes me wonder whether tuberculosis is actually, the people who actually get the tuberculosis are people who have problems with nutrition. They don't have enough nutrients or they have too many poisons that they're exposed to. But if you are eating a, living a healthy lifestyle, that microbe may actually be helping you. I, w so, I wonder if ivermectin is ever recommended for, for TB. I know, I wonder too. I know malaria, you know, malaria is connected to the um, hydroxychloroquine. And that's one of the reasons also probably why Africa did so well, because they're very comfortable with uh, giving hydroxychloroquine for malaria. Yeah. And, and India did quite well in the first wave because they would have used uh, a lot of ivermectin. Uh, second wave, um, it, it wasn't as, as recommended. I think uh, WHO came. I'm making sure everybody knows that it doesn't work, right? Yeah. <laughs> So. It's so crazy. I mean, I really think I, when I look back on the whole story, it just becomes very, it became clear to me actually early on, I suspected that the whole game, the way they're dealing with this disease is to get us geared up for that vaccine. They wanted to get mRNA technology out the door because they have great hopes for it. They're already developing all these different mRNA vaccines to treat cancer. You know, they have tremendous hopes. They think this is going to rescue the pharmaceutical industry, I believe. And it was so critical to get it out uh, past the regulatory process. And the only, only way you could do that is to terrify people into having to take that vaccine and doing inadequate, grossly inadequate testing. Yeah, I think I think it would be your colleague, Noam Chomsky, who said, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, create fear, the more you can control people. Yes, uh, exactly. And, and cool. I had a quick question before we move on. Um, the tuberculosis is coming from what in Africa? Is it transmission through uh, mosquitoes or oh, dust? Oh, that's, that's a good point. I don't actually know how it gets transmitted. I should, but I don't. Somebody, <laughs> you guys don't know either, right? I, I, I don't have to look that up. I would assume it's water. Um, um, and I always thought it was dust. So that, that that's a something we should definitely look into further. Um, but anyway, yeah, so... Uh, go ahead, Al. You were going to ask another question. I was, I was just going to mention that, you know, 
for me, my, my, my naturopath, you know, try trying not to be judgmental. He, he, he did, he did say, yeah, you know, you've definitely done something that I wouldn't recommend, but, uh, but at the same time, he, he said, you know, he pushed, uh, an acetyl, um, uh, cysteine. cysteine. Yeah. That's a good one. And, uh, and I take a lot of, uh, chlorella. Um, yeah. Chlorella has incredibly good fats. Oh, is that, is that okay? Yeah. Uh, polyunsaturated fats is another one that's good. Actually, they can bind to the spike protein and keep it from uh, binding to the ACE2 receptor. Uh, sorry, monos? Uh, polyunsaturated fats, PUFA, P-U-F-A, which these, uh, chlorella has a really good source of PUFA. Okay. 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 More chlorella, uh, more chlorella. Is that also mm-hmm. a coconut fat? Or is yeah, that- yeah well, coconut fat is also very healthy. That's a mid-chain uh, fatty acid, quite saturated, actually. I think saturated fats are wonderful. I, uh, they tell you don't eat saturated fats because of heart disease risk, and I think that's completely bogus. Agreed. And uh, I think, yeah, definitely pushing the fermented foods and probiotics uh, mm-hmm. would have been uh, my, my strategy to try to, try to combat my uh, – or try to get my immune system back into balance. And of course, cannabis, uh, you know, for me, uh, I don't know if it's just uh, more of a mental thing or just, you know, believing that cannabis does help re- regulate my endocannabinoid system and therefore um, things like um, producing the, the right amount of lysosomes, um, creating uh, apoptosis and so on and so forth. I'm, I'm- yes, that's so important to have a healthy uh, ability to break down debris. That's where you really need to have the healthy lysosomes. I think that's a lot of the problem. The mitochondria and the lysosomes are both in trouble uh, with all the toxic exposures and, and, the, and the immune cells, when they don't have working mitochondria and they don't have working lysosomes, they can't do their job. And then they die and they get left as floating around in debris. Like the, think of it, the giant plastic island. Yeah, the fungus comes in because the fungus can clean up all this rot that nobody else can clean up. You know, I think that might be why you get fungus infection because we've got a problem there too that's been growing since glyphosate and probably growing since the vaccines, I would guess. That's just a wild guess. No, you're spot on. I mean, the fungus infections that are happening, especially out here in California, have gone through the roof. So I think Mm, you're- Interesting. I would predict You provided them the perfect environment for them to thrive. Exactly. And they've, they've, they've adapted to the ability of dealing with warmer temperatures, which was always our defense because we had such a high temperature. They couldn't mm. get in, but we, they couldn't establish themselves. So, yeah, it, it's a crazy time to be alive. Um, it really is. It's exciting anyway. You never know what's going to happen the next day. <laughs> it's, it's both terrifying and exciting. And I use yeah. that all the time because, I mean, yes. in the world that I'm working in, there's so many new tools and instruments and ways to really understand, you know, these next levels of, of you know, the beyond microbial. We're getting into mic, uh, into mic uh, molecules and metabolites, which is just, you know, unheard of. But that's that's where you have to go to really understand these biogeochemical interactions and reactions. So in that way, it's it's a great time to be alive. But also you've got these conversations that are quite horrifying, but, um, yes. you know, I, and I hate to change the subject, but Ab, we got 14 questions and, Oh, sorry. Yes. 30, 30 <laughs> I'll try to break off half an hour before to give the audience a chance to, to quest, you know, ask you some questions. So Ken, if you're there, why don't we just break in? And if we have more time at the end, we can uh, dive back into some of these subjects. Sounds great. Um, 
And I want to say thank you, um, Dr. Sadnoff, for, for coming on. Um, fantastic knowledge and information. Thank you. Thank you. It's been my so pleasure. We'll, we'll start with uh, hillbilly herb. Interesting. So I wonder if adding more probiotics and labs to the system could help. Now, this is from earlier on in the show. Yeah, well, probiotics are obviously uh, useful. I personally like the idea of eating uh, fermented foods as opposed to mm -hmm. taking a probiotic pill. A lot of, most of the microbes, of course, don't make it through the acid of the stomach. So it's kind of hard. You have to get these spores and things like that. Um, maybe the fecal um, implants might be better <laughs> to yep. get past the stomach acid. But, um, but definitely eating probiotic food is definitely healthy, not just for the microbes that you're getting. Um, but of course, they're going to help with your mouth micro microbiome, which is important also. And um, they're going to provide a lot of really great nutrients. Um, that because the food's been partially digested by them and they turn it into really good things. So I really promote uh, eating uh, probiotic foods. And, yeah. and the labs as well. So what is labs? Uh, lactobacillus or lactic oh, acid. Oh, oh. Lactic acid. Sorry, oh, lactic acid bacillus. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, lactic acid is fantastic. So yeah, I really love sour cream, for example, it has a lot of lactate in it. It's a fantastic food. Um, and so these microbes that can make it are probably also really, really useful. I would think so. They're the most prevalent biology on our planet for our species. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Thank you for that. You bet. Uh, now, the next question is, have you studied the Amish community? Yeah, I'm aware of the Amish. And they're interesting because they, they live in a sort of an uh, earlier time. They don't, don't do a lot of the modern stuff, which probably helps them a lot. I don't think they avoid glyphosate altogether, but I'm sure their farming practices are a lot better than ours are. And of course, they're also very hesitant about vaccines and they have a very low rate of autism. So I know all of that and I find that very, very interesting. But you haven't yeah. actually studied them in, in just in general. Yeah, I haven't gone into the numbers, you know, specifically to be able to, to say definitively, but it does look to me like they are um, healthier than the rest of us. And it's likely because of their avoidance of all of these things that we're exposed to today, including the EMFs. Of course, they don't like to use uh, modern technology, um, you know, the um, all the devices. So that probably helps them too. Ken, so I did, Ken, I did do a little bit of reading on this. And yeah, their their rate of autism is, is nothing. It, I don't Very think low. any cases. And then as far as like all of these other you know, autoimmune issues and, and rates of cancer and all that stuff. They're just, they're, it's almost like they, they're impervious. They're like bulletproof. And That's I think, really right. yeah, I think it's, first of all, they don't do any vaccines. And, and if right. you look at the vaccines that we Americans have gone through since the eighties, the, the it's incredible. of all these, you know, rises of diseases and issues has gone through the friggin' roof and they I have, the, they're flatlined there. So yeah, I agree 100. They 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 are the ones that uh, have approached this modern world a lot better um, than the vast majority of us. We need sure. to learn from them and try we to imitate to. what they do. Yeah, yeah, mimic what they're doing, which is not using chemicals and not putting all these bad compounds in our bodies, letting our biology actually stay healthy and heal us. Exactly. They don't even make bees. I know. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> So ghetto hippie is, um, and I'm not sure if I'll pronounce it right, thimerosal and glyphosate. The right. Yeah, that's very interesting to me because I know that there's a 
people have written papers linking thimerosal to um, wait. I'm oh, thimerosal is the mercury, right? I'm, that's I don't the, know. I think that's the mercury. I was thinking of the um, acetaminophen that the because people take Tylenol. Yeah, thimerosal is mercury. Um, mercury gets sulfated in the liver as a way to detoxify it, and so does uh, so does that uh, acetaminophen, the Tylenol. Both of them depend upon sulfation to get detoxified. And glyphosate is a train wreck for the sulfate system. I talk a lot about that in my book. I think it's really disrupting a lot of the enzymes that are involved in making sulfate and distributing sulfate, delivering sulfate, all of it's messed up by glyphosate. So we have a systemic sulfate deficiency problem. And when the liver doesn't have the capability of adding sulfate to mercury because that enzyme is messed up, mercury becomes very toxic. And is that... So uh, maybe the reference was to the thimerosal that's used in a vaccine. In the vaccine, thimerosal is a um, is a mercury-containing uh, molecule that's used in the vaccine as an adjuvant to to cause the immune system to get upset. Because when you have a, a a vaccine that just has the proteins from the virus, the immune system kind of just uh, I don't care. It's not important. But you have to make it more interesting by putting in something toxic to get the immune system to react to it. So that's why they add the mercury. Yeah, I'm pretty sure vaccine is in, I mean, mercury is in all the vaccines. No, 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 it isn't actually. They've been trying to get rid of it. In fact, they claimed that around 2000, they really cleaned up their act on mercury, and yet the autism autism rates continued to go up. So they said, ha, 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 mercury doesn't cause autism. They oh, used that sorry. argument. But what happened was they introduced a new vaccines that had a lot of aluminum in them. There's a really nasty shot right at birth, high level of aluminum. Oh, also, the, uh, the HPV shot that they give to the teenage girls. Oh. And they even give it to the boys. Lots and a really nasty form of aluminum. So the aluminum is actually replacing the mercury. And that's why the rates kept on going up because they're both incredibly toxic metals. Yeah. That I think key. are contributing to autism. In fact, um, mercury was found, I mean, aluminum was found in high levels in autistic brains post-mortem by Chris Exley in, in a study that he published. And, and all that makes so much sense because uh, aluminum is highly toxic at low pH and we're an anaerobic yeah. digester. So we're right. just releasing it all. Um, and then that, let's go back to what people can do to get higher sulfates into their diet. I mean, our soils are just caked in this stuff now. Um, no, really? <laughs> yeah, everybody's sulfur and aluminum are through the roof um, mm -hmm. due to a lot of gypsum and a lot of the sulfate mineral salt products that are put into fertilizers. So what can people eat to, to kind of like give us some of the, the, the broken down version of it? Yeah, well, you just, you need to eat foods that contain sulfur. And you, you mentioned N-acetylcysteine, that's a sulfur containing amino acid, the cysteine. And um, methionine is also, and taurine is one that I really like. Taurine is a very interesting amino acid. It's found in high levels in um, shellfish, like oysters and clams. Fish, uh, especially deep sea fish, have taurine. Uh, Grass-fed beef, um, so meat, uh, animal meats, but especially the uh, the seafood, high levels of taurine. It's it's an it's uh, not found in any plants, any any plant-based foods except for nori, which is the seaweed that makes um, sushi. Mm. So only plants that has uh, taurine, which is quite amazing. Well, so it if makes you're eating a plant-based diet. You get yeah, none. the ocean. So that makes total sense to me. Yeah, yeah, right. The ocean, because that's where the fish are. They need the taurine for the deep, to handle the pressures at deep water. Taurine helps mm. them do that. But taurine is a super interesting model, molecule. I've been studying it a lot, actually, from way back, even before 
when I was first looking into autism, I got interested in taurine. And um, it, it is the gut microbes. So they consider taurine to be inert, that our cells can't break it down. It, the, it's, it accumulates in high concentrations in the liver, the brain, and the heart it, as a free amino acid. And it's released from the heart during a heart attack. It's released from the brain during seizures. And it actually makes its way to the liver and the liver attaches the taurine to the bile acids and ships it over to the gut. And then the gut microbes can metabolize the taurine, and turn it into sulfate. They extract sulfate. Taurine has, is the only sulfonated amino acid. It has almost a sulfate, just needs one more oxygen to make sulfate. And there you have these enzymes that are able to do that in the gut microbes. And so that's a way to get sulfate directly from the taurine. It's kind of the amino acid that's closest to sulfate. Uh, among the amino acids that contain sulfur. But cysteine also gets converted to sulfate. Methionine gets converted to sulfate by these various enzymes that get disrupted by glyphosate. In fact, even the enzyme that converts inorganic sulfur into methionine gets disrupted by glyphosate in the E. coli. So this becomes a methionine deficiency. Glyphosate actually suppresses mm. methionine synthesis by the gut microbes. And, they, and again, we can't make methionine. We depend, depend upon our gut microbes to make methionine or we get it from our diet. And like cysteine and methionine are closely related. But those two are very important, for example, for, for um, glutathione. Glutathione in the liver is a really important antioxidant. It contains three amino acids, glutamate, cysteine, and glycine. And so both the cysteine and the glycine are problematic with glyphosate. You know what's crazy, Ken? Last week we had Charlie on saying how horribly polluted our seafood is. Mm, I know, how that's terrible. Today, how critical it is for our future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, It's amazing how um, the powers that be seem to be not have our best interests at mind, but we'll, we'll leave that alone. We'll go on to the next, next question here. Um, what was the flower he mentioned uh, for celiac tip? Uh, Ab, I think that one's to you, my friend. I think it's properly called tip double knot, but T I P zero zero. Okay. There you go. My friend. It's from uh, Italy. It's an Italian wheat. Okay. It's a form of wheat and it's a yeah. form of wheat that is, that is okay to eat. Right. For, I, I know people with celiac who, who went to Italy and they could eat all the pasta they wanted. It might be an ancient a grain, right? Like I, an ancient form because uh, wheat has changed. You know, we've been yeah. mucking with it and that's, some people say it's because of this, the new form of wheat that's not it's, it's, it's a dur It's a durum wheat. It's not like a camlet or, or anything mm -hmm. like that, but, um, but yeah, so it kind of makes me think that it might have more to do with uh, no no glyphosate residue. Yeah, we don't know whether it's that. Uh, there was a study that was comparing organic uh, ancient grains of wheat with non-organic regular modern wheat uh, with people who had inflammatory gut. And they found they switched them back and forth between these two when they were eating the healthy organic ancient grain, they were much, much better with respect to the inflammation. But mm -hmm. they they attributed it to the to the ancient rather than to the organic. But I think the organic might have been the bigger player. But they didn't even look at that. They ha they said it was organic, but they didn't seem to think about what that might mean in terms of it being healthier. Mm -hmm. uh, Ab, where can they get that? Is it in unfortunately? I, I we get ours from Amazon, but I think many many uh, 
uh, <laughs> an, an Italian shop. Like I live in a, in rural Nova Scotia. We're we're not going to be able to 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 have a an Italian shop here, but uh, it, it is carried in in higher end Italian shops. And as a flower or in the pro- in the end? Yeah, okay. It just comes as a you know a one kilogram bag. That's what I I get. Nice. Okay. Well, I mean, for the most part, we, we we're not celiac, so we we consume organic uh, uh, wheat produced in Quebec. But uh, but you know, for those who who can't. Well, now we know, and thanks, guys, for for putting it up. So, uh, let's go on to, um, and I know I would butcher this, uh, neon icotobids. Yeah, yeah neonicotinoids. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. What is that? <laughs> Neonicotinoids, yeah, that's uh, chlorpyrifo. It's really, really nasty stuff. Um, I think a major factor for the bee colony collapse syndrome, it's an insecticide. Um, and it's like glyphosate, you know, oh, yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. But it's not. Um, and, and glyphosate is probably synergistically toxic with the chlorpyrifos. Um, so together, they, they make music. They're worse off than either one by itself. You know, in combination, they, they, they become more yeah. toxic. Yeah, it's strange how that works. But hey, we we won't go there. I'll behave. Was this uh, was this the Russian rat study on glyphosate, or what was this? Maybe they're asking that where was, they could find it. That was that conversation we were having earlier about yeah. glyphosate used on the animals. Yeah, we don't know if it was Russian. Uh, there was a rat study by Seralini in France. Okay. Um, that was the long-term study that showed that glyphosate messes up the, their, the rats in many ways if you wait long enough. But after three months, they looked pretty good. They weren't, there wasn't any obvious problem after three months. Yeah, okay. actually, actually uh, you know, if, if he, he, he even refers to the, the last month and he, saw, he said he could see some kidney and liver damage. And so it, it really wasn't much beyond three months that you could actually start seeing some damage. Yeah, by four months, they were seeing trouble. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it just kept it so far out of balance for way too long where the body couldn't recover itself. Yeah, and of course, I think it slowly accumulates in your tissues and it goes into your proteins and messes them up. So it's really kind of a lot of bullets uh, all around your body that yeah. stick around. Uh, glyphosate sticks around for a long time. That's another thing that they claimed that it disappears quickly from the soil. Ideal conditions, maybe that's true, but in many cases it doesn't. And it'll, uh, there was a study on trees in Canada where they had uh, applied glyphosate to the forest 12 years beforehand. And then they'd looked at the flesh from the trees and they still found glyphosate contamination at pretty high levels in the, in the trees 12 years later. Wow. So it doesn't go away quickly in some environments. The other thing that, another one that I was really fascinated by, they looked at murky water, like from, you know, taken from a, a murky lake uh, with a lot of organic matter in it. And then they put glyphosate into the water and then they tested the glyphosate to see how much was there shortly thereafter. And it disappeared. It disappeared from the water, got much, much lower. And what they found was it was getting sucked up by the organic matter. So the glyphosate was accumulating in a thousand times higher concentration in those organic, um, you know, pieces that were in the water. Yeah, the, the biomass, the biomass was mm-hmm. gathering the, up the glyphosate. And then so when you have the manatees in Florida, they're really sick. They've gotten really in bad shape the last couple of years. And Florida's got a really big problem with glyphosate from many sources. 
and that if you think the water, the glyphosate goes into the waterways, goes into the biomass, which is what the manatees eat. So they're getting a very high concentration of glyphosate, and I think it's killing them. Do we have a half life on glyphosate? Uh, Has anybody ever? Yeah. Well, I mean, Monsanto says it disappears quickly in the soil, like in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, but that's not so, true um, in many soil types. In fact, in clay, I guess when there's a lot of clay, it'll last for a really long time. Is does it have a negative or a positive charge? Negative charge. There you go. There you go. That's why it's attracting to clay and to organic matter. Mm, there you go. Thank you. There's amazing information on this panel. It's it's everybody keeps blowing my mind. I'm just sitting in the back learning most of the time, and I I enjoy enjoy the hell out of it. So. So realistically, it's going to be pretty difficult for most of us to avoid glyphosate tainted foods. So how can we best augment our own system and biology to better cope? Yeah, and I mentioned some things already, like the taurine eating the foods that are rich in sulfur containing, uh, sulfur containing foods in general, cruciferous vegetables, you have uh, vegetable foods that are good sources of sulfur. It's not um, taurine, and, uh, and it's not necessarily amino acids, but you have some nice... Uh, sulfur compounds that are in uh, like sulforaphane and broccoli, cauliflower. Um, onions uh, and garlic. Yeah, onions and garlic are great. I use tons of onions and garlics in cooking. Um, and I generally like people to use a lot of spices and herbs. They have a lot of benefit benefits in terms of as antioxidants. Um, skunk and so, number one. Skunk number one? Yeah. <laughs> That's for our that's for our cannabis lovers. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that. <laughs> hey, I got a suggestion. Make yourself some really good thermal dynamic, or not thermophilic, mesophilic vegan compost. Take some of that, mix it in with your food, because that's going to attract that molecule. It's going to attract the glyphosate. Uh, yeah, that well, that's play. That's Remember close the to what they recommend, actually, because humic acid and fulvic acid, which is basically organic matter from the soil, People mm -hmm. are taking that as a supplement. It was shown in the study on cows that it helps them. Yeah, okay, there you go. I've had it myself. So it's a pretty interesting because it's a good binder. It binds to a lot of different chemicals and, and takes them out through the feces. Even it might have enzymes in there. there. There are these very versatile enzymes that are capable of breaking down a lot of different chemicals that mm -hmm. tend to get trapped in that um, fulvic acid. So the enzymes might even be able to break it down, which would be really awesome. Well, we actually have a discount code in our description where people um, that watch the podcast can get a percentage off of a human grade, humic full of the combination um, from a young lady we had on uh, Leah Oram um, actually last week or was the mm. week before um, a com her company uh, produces it. So that's perfect. That's great. So we'll jump uh, into the electron transport chain is interfered with oh boy that's a huge topic <laughs> that's one that i would love to get into and it's going to have to make me introduce deuterium because i i don't know if you know anything about my interest in deuterium or what deuterium is no not myself yeah okay so deuterium i'm going to go with this deuterium it's heavy hydrogen it's a natural form of hydrogen that has an extra neutron so hydrogen is the smallest atom on the periodic chart it's the one up in the upper left hand corner Okay. one proton and one electron and deuterium is a natural form of hydrogen with an extra neutron so it's twice as heavy as hydrogen 
and it's natural. It's in the um, seawater at 155 parts per million. And so it's in your blood at a similar yeah. level. It's all over your body, in fact. And there's a lot of hydrogen. You know, your body is mostly hydrogen. So there's so many hydrogen molecules. They're, atoms, they're so tiny. Um, but you've got the deuterium there with the hydrogen. And the mitochondria hate deuterium. They have an enzyme, the AP, ATP synthase, that makes the ATP, which is the energy currency of the cell. ATP synthase hates deuterium. And so okay. the mitochondria actually work really hard to keep deuterium out of the intermembrane, intermembrane space. That they pump protons into this, you know, area surrounding the the um, matrix of the mitochondria. They pump up proteins into there to make a, a, a whole whole bunch, way too many protons inside that space surrounding the interior matrix. So the protons want to come out just because there's uh, a, a difference in the concentration. They want to come out, and they're forced to come out through those ATPase pumps. They actually are the proton motive force that it generates the energy to make the ATP. And mm -hmm. the ATPase pumps are very carefully designed to perfectly fit protons, but the deuterons are too big and clumsy and they break the, the ATPase pumps. And so there's all these enzymes that specialize in delivering low deuterium protons to the intermembrane space. And that is super, super fascinating. And I've been hooked on it now for ever since December, 2019, when I first heard about it by Laszlo Boros, he's a professor, really brilliant guy. He's been teaching me about deuterium and it's really, really fascinating. And once I was aware of deuterium, then I became aware of all these enzymes that have exotic behaviors that make more sense when you realize what they're trying to do in terms of avoiding deuterium. And many of those enzymes get disrupted by glyphosate. So I think glyphosate is causing deuterium excess in the mitochondria that's hurting the ATPase pumps and hurting the mitochondria. And then you get mitochondrial dysfunction, which is associated with all kinds of diseases. And that's so the electron transport chain is what's in the mitochondria that makes the ATP. So that's part of that whole system that gets derailed uh, by glyphosate. Just one of the many dominoes that keep falling over, you know? It's amazing. Yeah, I'm super interested in deuterium and I want to learn more and I want to write about it, but I, I get... Um, there's too much else still going on that's keeping me from diving in as much busy. as I might like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hmm. I think Leighton and Av are both in the same boat with the, <laughs> the research that they're doing. It's, it's crazy the time that it takes, but you you just crave to learn and share that knowledge. It is. It's really fun. I really, I, I, that's what keeps me going. I mean, we're in such a mess and I just wish I could turn things around with the, make the governments realize how badly off rail we are right now um but the science is really fun so that keeps me going yeah well Agreed. we're creating oh sorry go ahead Leighton. i was just agreeing with her 100 it's the only thing that's yeah. keeping me getting up every day yeah and we're creating or trying to create on on platforms like this and many other shows on the internet the knowledge getting out to more and more people so we do really appreciate your coming on with us today yeah, I enjoyed so, it. It was a great conversation. We've still got a few more questions. We keep having more coming in, but um, we'll get with this one. Uh, the electron transport chain is interfered with. That's kind of the one that I tried to answer in the previous conversation about deuterium, because that's the electron transport chain is what's crucial to the mitochondria to make the ATP. And, and that's involved very heavily with those protons that are flowing across. It's all the protons and electrons coming together to make to turn oxygen into water. 
and then at the same time make ATP out of ADP. So that whole reaction is super important in the mitochondria, central to metabolism and uh, disrupted by glyphosate in part through this disruption of the supply of protons that are low in deuterium. Messes okay. up the electron transport chain. Yeah, which is not good. <laughs> Very bad. <laughs> Very bad. So, Av, here's another one for you. I didn't catch quite the, the trial there. Does glyphosate reduce the ability of CBD to act in the system? I don't We're think so. That's not what I was saying. I was saying that it produces, it, it interferes with the natural production of the endogenous cannabinoid that's produced by human cells. So we have a CBD substitutes for something that is natural that we produce, but we don't produce enough of it when there's glyphosate poisoning the liver. Okay. Ab, didn't you say something about CBD as well? Um, I mean, C CBD works uh, on on uh, impacting cytochrome P450. Cytochrome P450 is is primarily formed in the liver, but also in the heart as as well as the lung tissues. And it is it is the main thing that you know the liver cleans up our blood, right? So any, if you're taking acetaminophen, it's going to go there and cytochrome P450 is going to detoxify the acetaminophen out of your blood. Right. And, and that's right. why, you know, if you were taking large amounts of CBD and you're on, on uh, chemotherapy or, or perhaps um, a high dose of heparin, a, a blood thinner or something, you'd want to tell your healthcare practitioner that you're also taking CBD because it may it may last longer in your system because it's not your your liver is not detoxifying as quickly because CBD can imp impact cytochrome P450. Okay, that's what it was. Yeah. Okay, so we'll go with uh, Ghetto Hippie's got lots here. So uh, mm -hmm. neurotoxins. Oh boy, <laughs> where do I begin? Yeah, all these chemicals are neurotoxins. It seems like that's so crucial, and that's why we're seeing, I think, an epidemic in so many different neurodegenerative diseases and neurological problems, neuropathy. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, Girelin and Brayden, mRNA huh? interactions. Yeah, that one stumps me, I'm afraid. <laughs> I okay. don't know about that. Well, our, our audience is, is really well read. So you never know what they're going to come up with. <laughs> um, did glyphosate start out as a descaler of stock water tanks? That's correct. Yes, it was first patented as a, um, as a metal pipe cleaner that it could strip off the metals from pipes because it binds so strongly as a chelator to metals. So it helps to clean the pipes. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't actually heard that one before. Yeah, clean the pipes and then drink it, right? Everything is great. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it strips the uh, lead off of the pipes, you know, like and causes this toxic lead in the water. I think it helps to facilitate the increase of lead in lead pipes, you know, the water in the lead from the lead pipes because glyphosate takes the lead off and puts it in the water. Oh, jeez. They probably oh. used it in Flint, Michigan. I know, that's right. Well, they, you know, I looked into that because they changed the water supply and it was coming down these rivers where they were growing all these... GMO Roundup Ready soy crops, you know, so I think they're probably getting a lot of glyphosate in the water and they didn't really uh, bring to, bring the proper water sanitation process in place in time. So the, the glyphosate gets killed by chlorine, thank God, because they use chlorine a lot to kill the bacteria when mm -hmm. they're doing the water uh, purification. And um, so I think they're breaking 
thank goodness, because I think otherwise we'd have a lot more glyphosate in our water supply. But they weren't doing it properly there. And so the glyphosate was then able to strip the lead off the pipes. And then I think they got really sky high levels of lead in their water supply in Flint, Michigan. I, I have a theory that that glyphosate contributed to that. I don't think it would surprise us actually at all that it did, you know. Mm -hmm. So the next one uh, from Ghetto Hippie 2 is a spirulina. Spirulina. Is that like uh, chlorella? Is yeah, it's like algae. Yeah. So it's I, probably very healthy. I would yeah, think it's it, very healthy. It's higher in protein than chlorella, but chlorella seems to be a better binder, uh, a uh, more selective binder than spirulina is. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, they, they seem like they've got a lot of good stuff. I think both of them would probably be quite useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Rusty Nails want to know, is there a pesticide benefit to using organically homegrown tobacco in some form, like a ferment or just a tea? Hmm. Pesticide benefit. What does that mean, a pesticide benefit? So I, I can take that one. Okay. The answer is absolutely yes. Uh -huh. the, the indigenous people were using tobacco for all kinds of wonderful things. Until the cigarette companies and the cigar companies taught us that, hey, we can use this as a fun way to relieve stress. And they created these tobaccos that they then put all these chemicals into to make them burn better, longer, cleaner ash, taste better. And, and they screwed the whole tobacco plant. Up. But yes, tobacco, a natural tobacco plant is one of your best pesticides in your, in your recipe book. Just look it helps to it helps to clear the pests or remove the the yeah. herbicides. Yeah, it kills the pests. The, the neonico neonicotinoids are built made from tobacco. The nicotine from tobacco. Oh really? I didn't know that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So the nicotine actually. Yeah. Yep. Huh. As a matter of fact, I got a study sent to me. I smoke cigarettes, and I got a study sent to me by a buddy of mine right after uh, COVID hit. And this woman was working with the CDC um, and she had a, a extensive experience on the powers of nicotine. And basically this study said, if you're smoking cigarettes, you can't get COVID because oh, they, I heard that too. I heard yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, I, think yeah. I, well, I actually I smoke more. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I actually believe that uh, I have wondered whether cigarettes are really toxic. This is kind of a revolutionary thing to say. Because, you know, they've always used chemicals and they use a lot of glyphosate. There's GMO Roundup Ready Tobacco, I think, is most of the tobacco that's grown today. There was an amazing film, I think, from Argentina where they showed these poor kids that had been really uh, mm -hmm. genetically modified children or something like that, it was called. These kids were really messed up by the glyphosate that was required. The uh, the tobacco farmers, the, the, the company, would not... Um, take their product unless they had the GMO tobacco and they used the um, glyphosate to make sure there weren't any weeds in the tobacco. And their kids all were getting terribly sick. They had some really exotic genetic diseases and things. I mean, it was really horrible. Um, and so I think that tobacco is almost certain to have glyphosate in it. And I suspect that glyphosate is the most toxic ingredient in the tobacco. And I think if you just had organic tobacco, it might even be good for you. I would go out on a limb and say it might even be good for you. I would say most of the natives across North America weren't wrong when they were smoking, you know, proper tobacco. Well, they were smoking Nick Nick, which is a combination of a lot of different herbs. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's that, interesting. Yeah, smoking yeah herbs. they were using they were using tobacco as a cleanser. So if someone had a you know an evil spirit or 
or had bad feeling or bad intentions, they would they would smoke and cleanse them with the tobacco. But they also used it on their plants to prevent um, inf infestation yep. of insects. That's really interesting. And see, now we have been able to actually bring something to you for all the information you've been giving to us. So I, that's great. Absolutely. I appreciate everything you guys have shared with me. It's been wonderful. I always like to learn, so I appreciate it. We well, have one last question, guys. So let's hit that, and, the, and then we'll, we'll step out. But um, is this heavy water building blocks? The I think that's, that's the deuterium. I don't know. Oh, I don't know how to interpret that question, but I do think that the deuterium uh, is used in the body. It's actually separated out so that the deuterium accumulates in um, structured water, gelled water. This is Gerald, Gerald Pollock's um, work with the gelled water. The yep. gel actually traps deuterium. It, it's reluctant. Deuterium doesn't leave. The gel pushes out protons, but not deuterons. And so the protons become deuterium depleted and they're channeled into the cell just to, and directly fed into the mitochondria and the lysosomes to give them that beautiful deuterium depleted water that they need. And then what's left behind is higher concentration of deuterium in the gel. And the gelled water, it needs sulfate. So that goes back to the sulfate deficiency where there's not enough gelled water lining the blood vessels, which then means there's too much deuterium in the blood because the gel is not trapping as much deuterium as it would if there were more of it. So I think that's all connected to the sulfate as well. So I think I think that, he was... that brought you here. Yeah. Yeah. He's the one that suggested having you on that I reach out to. There so, you go. Sorry, Joe sorry, Layton. That's right. Uh, so I saw that. I that was that... what attracted me too to say yes, because <laughs> I love him. He's fantastic. Yeah, he's a great guy. No, but I think what he was asking was more about is that the building blocks for heavy water? that's used in uh, nuclear reactions. Oh, it is. Deuterium is actually what makes the heavy water for the nuclear plants. And that's when they learned how to actually make high deuterium water as well as low deuterium water. And it was after they discovered how to do this that they started feeding rats this high deuterium water and it caused horrendous results. These rats became very vicious and ferociously hungry. And, um, and then they, after a few days, they became very lethargic and the ones that were still able to beat them up would kill them, you know, and then after about 10 or 12 days, all the rats were dead. This is from drinking heavy water. So it's extremely toxic, which is really fascinating, but very, very high levels of deuterium, nothing you'd ever find in nature. Ken, may I have one last question? Of just course. To, and, and it's just, just to know, um, do you see AI and microbes? Huh. See AI and microbes. Well, I kind of think microbes are God. So <laughs> I believe in God, but I think God is microbes. <laughs> so they're wonderful. I think the microbes are really the um, in control. In, in a way, they're in control. I, mean, of I, was, I was thinking more with with uh, you know the evolution of of uh, AI. Do you do you do you see how AI and microbes might somehow get work? Work working. together. Yeah, uh, I, I don't think I can bridge that gap. <laughs> AI is very interesting, and I have been playing around with a chatbot, and it's pretty, uh, it's pretty interesting. But it can make incredibly bad errors, so we have to be very careful with it. So, Av, I might be able to answer that question. Yes, we're we're working with a number of different um, forms of AI in this work with the Muncher juice in trying to determine the molecular and the metabolite metabolites so i'll keep you posted as we go okay. forward 
Because I think that's what you're asking is how will AI advance our understanding of not only how microbes evolve, uh, but do do functions that that they can often change and they, they can morph. And there's just there's so much information out there. It's like you don't even know where to start. Like, I know. Wait it's a minute, really hard. This, this can turn into that when it's in this environment or when these two come together, they can horizontal gene transfer and, and mm -hmm. completely do a different function. So yeah, it's it, it complicated is not the word. <clears throat> but yes, I will keep you posted. And will you come back on in the future and talk more about um, this work that you're doing? Because this is incredible. I'd love to. <laughs> it's been great. I really appreciate that you guys are are willing to listen to the hard stuff because a lot of people get their eyes glaze over, you know, when you start to talk about uh, real biology and that frustrates me. So this has been a great conversation. I'd be happy to do it again. Awesome. Awesome. Ken, get her booked in about six months. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Thank you for what you do. It's wonderful. And we do need Thank to get you. the message out to people to get them interested because I think biology is really fun. And if you, um, if you get engaged, you can really have a lot of fun with it. And it can sustain you in a very troubled time. <laughs> so, um, and, and there's a lot of information out there now where there wasn't yes. just 10 years ago. That's there's true. So much more. And people are becoming educated too. People who are sick, especially, are really keen to know what's going on. So they they care mm -hmm. enough to learn. You know, well, I think in many ways that the, that whole COVID year and a half, two year shutdown opened people's minds to wait a minute what am i doing what kind of life do i have how am i contributing what am i eating what am i being exposed to and yeah they're becoming their best advocate instead of just accepting what the doctor told them to do they're kind of like all right let me research this a little bit for myself and and then ask more intelligent questions so i think in many ways, it was both horrific and enlightening for. Yeah, I agree, and I think people are a lot more aware about vaccines as well, which is really important. Mm -hmm. And I'm really rooting for for Bobby Kennedy Jr. Yeah, great guy. So yeah, he was exciting to have for years. I mean, when when my wife and I had children, we didn't vax. We lied. Yeah, we got that's, a, we got that's fantastic. That's yeah, fantastic we got a lie for us, and that was that was pretty hardcore. I mean, he could lose his license for doing that shit. Yeah, you know that's I mean? really fortunate that he was willing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we should probably world. respect. Thank we should you probably so much. Yeah, we probably <laughs> should respect your time. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. That was my pleasure. Plus hours, um, and look very much looking forward to having you back again. Thank you. You too. Okay, and with that, guys, I'm going to end the broadcast. Stephanie, if you want to stick around, talk to the guys afterwards, uh, you're more than welcome to. But as for the, the chat and what's coming up um, on Wednesday, of course, uh, Andy Lopez, the Invisible Gardener, and uh, myself. Uh, Thursday, we have Luna. Um, I can't remember. I think her, her guest name is Andrew. Don't ask me who he is. But knowing Luna, it's somebody special. And we have another Dem Pure Farmer coming on on Friday again um, to teach us more about the dead and pure methodologies. So you're going to want to check that out. Anyway, guys, we will see you next time on